Chris gonna show you a thing or two. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our really good friends at Oro Recovery. My friend John Bucati just did an event at Oro Recovery, and he called it Paradise. We know people who have been there to get well. They have said the recovery at Oro was remarkable. The people at Oro were outstanding. Founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob, staff with decades of experience in co-occurring mental health disorders, treating addicts with love, compassion, and connection rather than control. If you can get to sunny Southern California to get better, I really suggest going to Oro, not to mention the amenities. Sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, gazing at the ocean, fucking the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. It's all there. Check them out at ororecovery.com and tell them you heard about it from Dopey. If you are looking for another great recovery podcast, I want to tell you about Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings. If the neighbors only knew. Check out Recovery in the Middle Ages wherever you get your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and other dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure and an honor to bring another episode of Dopey into the world. I remember I'd listen to other people's podcasts, and they'd mention the number that their podcast was up to. And I, at the time, I was even more disorganized than I am now, and I'd be like, how do they know what number they're up to? But we are up to episode 450 fucking three. Hold on. Let's, you know, yeah. And I say, yay. 453. I can't stop the clapping. And I, I'm threatening still to do extra episodes. I'm thinking we're going to do a bonus Tuesday episode. I don't know how long I'm going to threaten to do it before we actually do it. But look to the horizon for a bonus Tuesday episode. And before we get into the show, we need to celebrate some dopes. First of all, we need to celebrate Jeff H. He writes in, what's up, Dave and Dopey Nation? My name is Jeff H. From Orange County, California, the OC, and just celebrated six years 
of continuous sobriety. Congratulations, Jeff. Thank you for sending in your, your anniversary. I like that. I just got another one from Josh from Buffalo. Congratulations again, Jeff. I don't know if I, if I congratulated you enough. Hey, I just discovered the podcast, and my wife and I, both in recovery, have listened together. Isn't that romantic? It's been a great addition to my recovery arsenal. On February 17th, I'll be celebrating seven years clean and sober from everything. Yay. Um, yeah, da, 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 shooting heroin and crack with vinegar and lemon juice. Now I've gone through brain cancer, brain surgery, family loss, marriage, house ownership, all sober. Amazing. Thank you for what you do. Congratulations. That's Josh from Buffalo. And, um, and Joe Schrank, dopey OG. And former employer of Chris, Joe Schrank, celebrated 20 years earlier this month. So big congrats to Joe. And if you know Joe, wish him a hearty and a happy 20-year dealy. And, yeah, I, I guess Dopey is a recovery podcast. But it's about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I think recovery could be under the category of addiction or dumb shit depending on where you like to see it. And something interesting happened, I think. If you listened last week, you know that I was sick, and um, I got sick. I think I had COVID, but I refused to get tested because I hate the test. The test is so painful, and I'm such a pussy. I can't handle it. So I, ref Linda was like, you should get tested. I was like, what do I need to get tested for? And then I got sick for a few days, then my daughter got strep. And then now Linda has COVID. But I took those days and I and I dedicated it to watching some very serious television. I watched the show Griselda, starring uh, what's her face, Sofia Vergara, Vergana. I don't I don't even know how to say her name. Let's see, Sofia. Yeah, Vergara, and she plays Griselda Blanco. The La Madrina of Miami, like the biggest woman coke dealer in Miami, maybe the biggest coke dealer in Miami. It is a very, I mean, I was sick. I had a fever, but I watched that show back to back to back. It was a binging experience and it was incredibly dopey. And I totally suggest watching it to anybody. But I had this weird thing happen. Another thing that happened last week was that Wayne Kramer died. And Wayne Kramer, of course, was the guitar player from the MC5. We had him on Dopey. We just replayed his interview. And I was, was actually going into his interview and editing a bit of stuff out, just cleaning it up. And I heard him talk about the jazz trumpet player Red Rodney, and he had met Red Rodney while he was in prison. And I'm... I don't know, I think I had just finished Griselda and I saw the movie Bird was on, you know, some old movie channel. Like, I don't think it's Turner Classic. One of these MGM classics. I don't know. And and Bird, if you don't know, is this movie that Clint Eastwood made about Charlie Parker, who was arguably the greatest saxophone player who ever lived. And he was a horrible heroin addict and alcoholic. And he was probably the person that made it cool 
for jazz musicians to become heroin addicts. It's probably why Miles Davis was a heroin addict. Probably birthed a whole universe of heroin addiction. Probably beatnik heroin addiction came out of Charlie Parker. But Bird is this really junky-feeling movie, and, and the alcoholism also. It's, it's incredibly deep, and the mental illness and tragedy and New York City in the in the forties. It's 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 not a well loved movie, but I really love the movie. I put it on halfway in the middle, and it was such an alcoholic junky vibe. Like, and I remember I used to use and watch that movie and be kind of lost with them, wasted. And as you know, I often will watch movies vicariously, trying to feel high or something in the movie. But I think I had just gotten over my sickness when I turned on Bird and he's in the middle of Los Angeles, I think, getting sick. I, I don't think I've ever remembered being so grateful to be sober and know that the sickness is not coming and that I don't need... I haven't done heroin. I don't think I've done heroin in, like, I want to say 10 years. And, 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 and I only did it once that year. It's been years since I did heroin. I dream about it. I talk about it. But I'm so happy that it's not in my life. And I think it's because it's something I realized then that being a heroin addict or being on benzos or even for me being a stoner, it's not sustainable with the kind of life that I want. And I found this moment of uh, of deep gratitude around my recovery watching Bird. So I suggest watching Bird. I suggest sending in an email or a voicemail to the show. Oh, yeah. The whole reason I brought it up was because Red Rodney is like one of the big characters in Bird. So Wayne Kramer dies. I upload the Wayne Kramer episode. I have my day of sickness binging watching Griselda. At the end of the day, I turn on Bird, and Bird is hanging out with an actor who's playing Red Rodney, and Red Rodney becomes a junkie in the movie. And, of course, it was Red Rodney who was in Wayne Kramer's book. It was just weird. It was just one of these things. Are there signs? Are we picking up signs? I got this opus email from a dope that it might be just too long for me to read it on the show. It might be a bonus Patreon read. It's a very tragic email all about signs. But that's why I brought up Bird and Griselda. And I would imagine a lot of dopes watched Griselda. Did you? Did it affect you? Send in an email or a voicemail. In other Florida news, I'm going to fucking Fort Lauderdale. I'm very excited to appear on the Hell Has an Exit podcast with Teddy. And I'm going to tell my story with Teddy. It's going to be shot in glorious high definition. They're putting me up in some beautiful spot. I'm ridiculously excited. And if you guys haven't listened, you need to check out Hell Has an Exit. Teddy interviews fucked up drug addicts people who spent decades in prison, wrongfully convicted, rightfully convicted. This week, Teddy has this dude on Chappie, a.k.a. Peter Mayerhoff. He was in jail for 12 years. He was a crazy meth addict, multiple overdoses, with an insane comeback story. Check out The Hell Has an Exit podcast. It's available everywhere you get podcasts. Also, all the videos on YouTube, and you can find... Everything Hell Has an Exit related at hellhasanexitpod.com. 
I got this email that I want to read in reference to last week's show, where he says, Hey Dave, I was listening to the recent episode where the Australian guy was talking about Datura. It reminded me of a drug that a couple of friends described to me that I never tried myself called Hell's Bells. I looked it up and the plant name is Datura. I think it's more commonly called Hell's Bells in the U.S. It was described to me as a long, fucked-up trip that I wouldn't wish on my worst nightmare, or worst enemy. At one point during my friend's trip, he thought he was at a party on top of a lake with a bunch of other people, literally thought they were having a great time and walking on water. He came to by himself in the middle of the night, waist-deep in a shallow lake, in an apartment apartment complex that he didn't live in or know why he was there. Anyway, I've been meaning to write you for a long time, but that stupid drug finally pushed me over the edge. I'm a huge podcast listener, but honestly, Dopey is the only thing I've listened to for years. Every time I try one of my old favorites, it doesn't do what Dopey does. In my book, you're up there with the great podcast interviewers like Marin and Conan O'Brien. Different style, I know, but great nonetheless. It's really incredible. Thank you. That's nice. I appreciate it. It's incredible how you adapted the show after Chris passed and turned it into what you have. I know Stern is a huge influence, and Dopey reminds me of Stern in the sense that the Dopey Nation is the cast characters like Artie, Stuttering John, or Baba Booey, not just fans of the show, but personalities on the show. I always get excited to hear updates from the old-school dopes. Me too. One thing I have to mention is... I know Grandpa Alan, who I love, has complained about the montage of toodles at the end of the Christmas episodes, but I love them so much I listen to every one of them and cry at the end every time. The last two are fucking heartbreaking. I'm a therapist living in Portland, Oregon, and you and Chris not only helped me realize that I have a problem and needed to do something about it after like 20 years of mostly functional problematic drinking and drug use, but it also helps me help the dopes that I work with. I'm able to understand and support people so much better because of what I've learned from you, Chris, and the Dopey Nation. I love working with dopes in my therapy, and now I have even more to give as a result of the show. Not that this was a riveting email or anything, but feel free to read it and use my name or whatever you feel like. Toodles for Chris, Todd, Hot Wheels, and all of the other dopes we have lost. Love you and appreciate you. And that is from Scott Fletcher. So thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. And I will send you some Dopey Socks. Give me your address. You get Dopey Socks and Dopey Nation if you have a fucked up story to tell or just want to say how great you think Dopey is and how great an interviewer I am. Send me an email, and if I read it on the show, I will send you Dopey Socks. There's also some really good new shit in the Dopey store. You go to dopeypodcast.com. Piz, the wonderful Dopey Piz... I guess he's kind of an OG. He's definitely a hardcore dope. He's he designed so much cool shit. His latest didn't even sit around in the inbox. It's immediately a dopey t-shirt. So thank you, Piz. Go to dopeypodcast.com. And the dude from SRO Prints, the place that makes all our stuff, he was like, We're doing this one for $20. So there's a, a cheapo $20. Really cool-looking, old-school dopey shirt available at the store. Thank Piz. Piz, you have a package coming to you, so congratulations. Also, we love voicemails. If you have a great dopey voicemail, please send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I have a good dopey LSD story 
from Eric that I'm about to play. But before I play it, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the good people at Mountainside. I don't know what you know about Mountainside. I went to Mountainside. At Mountainside, I met Chris, who started Dopey with me. We started it together, and we had an amazing experience at Mountainside. A spiritual awakening happened at Mountainside, a comedic awakening, a friendship. And not only all of that stuff, Mountainside also offers a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, recovery coaching. They have fucking super cool holistic wellness activities, yoga, qigong, sound bath. I did the sweat lodge. If you are fucked and you're willing to go to Connecticut to get some help, check them out at mountainside.com slash dopey. They have a little dopey page. Stuff about me and Chris. Their number is 888-833-4922. Mention Dopey if you call. It's an amazing place to get sober. And now here's a voicemail from Eric. What up, Dave? What up, Dopey Nation? This is Eric hitting you up from the mystical and mysterious Siskiyou Mountains of Southwest Oregon. Two things. The homie Damien just wrote in from Australia talking about being in the scattered state where he would try to move his left hand, but his right hand would move. And I totally relate to that, only it wasn't meth, it was ketamine. There's this in-between zone for me on K when I'm either headed into disassociation or coming out of disassociation, where I totally have that. I'll like try to take a step with my left foot and instead my shoulder will shrug and I'll fall on my fucking face or something. But it's like the like the wires in my brain get like crossed for like movement. I've totally been there like several times on ketamine. So I just wanted to relate to that, Damien. And you were asking for acid stories. I have a real quick LSD story. I have several of them that I've been thinking about setting in, but I think the year was about 2000, maybe 2001. I was on felony probation for growing weed in Utah. And my parents were nice enough to let me do house arrest at their house. So I had 90 days of house arrest to do. I was getting piss tested, couldn't smoke weed, couldn't do any drugs. But being the sneaky little drug addict that I am, I thought, you know, LSD, that doesn't show up on drug tests. I mean, even if it's in your pit, detectable in your piss, it's like 24 hours maybe. So I decided I'd have my friend bring over some acid for me. She brought over a couple hits of that Spider-Man acid. I don't know if anybody remembers that was going around the turn of millennium. It was really fucking intense. Usually not the funnest trip in my experience, but I really wanted to get high. So I waited till my parents went to sleep. I ate these two hits of Spider-Man acid, started flipping through the TV, fried green tomatoes. Never fucking seen it before. Heard it was a good movie. Thought, what the fuck? So I watched fried green tomatoes for the very first time as I'm coming up on this very intense acid trip. Super wild ride. Cried super hard. <laughs> like, that's an intense movie to watch on acid. Real emotional roller coaster. So then that finished, and I'm just like trying to sort through my thoughts. I don't know if anybody else experiences this, but this has been a thing for me my whole life eating psychedelics, whether it's mushrooms, acid, whatever. For some reason, every time I hit the peak, I always have to take the fattest fucking grizzly bear shit ever. Always. I just always have to shit when I'm peaking on psychedelics. So I dip into the restroom, getting ready to do my thing sitting there on the toilet, pants down, start pumping one out. And somehow, 
Somewhere in the chaos and madness of this acid trip, there's a big log of shit exiting my butthole. And I somehow, something flips in my mind, and I'm convinced that it's not leaving. Something is crawling up inside of me. In my head, it was like a giant centipede or like a snake of some sort. But in that moment, I became 100% convinced that like something is entering my body through the sphincter between my ass cheeks. And I fucking lost it. I grabbed my pants. I ran out of the fucking bathroom. I'm holding my pants up around my waist. They're unbuckled, undone. Run down the hallway into the bedroom where I'm staying. I turn on the fucking light, and I'm just in a complete fucking panic. But the light comes on, and I look down. I see that I'm holding my, I'm like holding my pants up, but they're unbuckled and stuff, and I kind of walk backwards through my head of like what was happening. And I kind of realize, like I can tell, I can feel that like my butt's not really that clean. It doesn't feel that great back there. And I kind of like coach myself through what was happening. All right, you watched Fried Green Tomatoes. You had to take a shit. You were in the bathroom. Like, was there really a snake or something? Like, anyway. So I get my wits back around me and I like creep back down the hallway very slowly, not, not knowing what the fuck was going to be in the bathroom. I'm still unsure if there's some kind of creature, some rogue dildo from the toilet. I don't know what the fuck it was. But I finally got the balls to go in there and I just like looked in the toilet and it was just a big turd. And I don't know. I don't know what happened in that moment. But uh, yeah, that was just a weird acid story that happened to me one time. So you asked for acid stories and that one crossed my mind. There it is. Um, hey, also, big shout out to Jeff Leach. Is it Jeff Leach or Josh Leach? You know, without you, I never would have known, dude. Who knew that mushrooms could cure hemorrhoids? I hope one day to open up a hemorrhoid clinic entirely based around psilocybin therapy for hemorrhoids because apparently, according to Jeff Leach, that's a thing. I don't know, episode 438. I would love to hear what everybody thinks about that claim that he makes. Um, anyway, much love. Huge fucking shout out to everybody in the dopey Zoom meetings. Um, I can't even describe the kinship I'm starting to feel for you people. And um, yeah, dude, I love the podcast. It's a big part of my life, big part of my recovery. And much love to everybody. Fucking stay strong. Toodles for Chris, toodles for Hot Wheels, toodles for Todd. And much love, everybody. Thank you, Eric. I don't think I have any recollection of ever needing to shit on LSD or mushrooms. I feel like I feel like you should always try to evacuate the bowels before a deeply psychedelic journey, but I'm sure I'm going to get 20 emails who think that defecating is a huge part of psychedelic journeys. And I like that he brought up Jeff Leach's hemorrhoids bit. This is Jeff... Jeff Leach on dopey on hemorrhoids. I uh, hemorrhoid I'd had for months healed healed instantaneously. Just my muscle, just the 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 vein just stopped being angry. I want to give a big hearty thank you to Eric and Jeff Leach. Do you have a shitting on acid story or a maybe a real snake came to get you while you were on acid on the toilet? Send it in to dopeypodcast at gmail.com and maybe you could get some really cool new dopey socks. Today on the show, we have internet sensation, YouTube content creator, fucking TikToker, all that stuff. She's a 
single mother heroin addict in recovery with a shit ton of followers all over the place on social media. She kind of documents her life, and she has a crazy, great, dopey story. Her name is Abby Fickley, and we are going to get up to Abby very, very soon. But first, I want to just thank the good people at Diamond Recovery for jumping on board as dopey sponsors. Diamond kicked off last year on a mission to help out as many addicts as possible, and they are there for those who are suffering. They have three amazing residential treatment centers up and running, and get this, they've got a 24-7 hotline. It is 844-909-2525. If you know anyone who needs a friendly ear, they've got your back. Once again, thank you, Diamond. If you're anywhere near Georgia or Florida, check out diamondrecovery.com or call them at 844-909-2525. Everything I've learned about Diamond, they have an incredible co-occurring mental health disorder treatment center specific to co-occurring mental health disorders in Florida. They really help a lot of young people. It's an amazing place to get sober. Again, diamondrecovery.com. I want to read another email. All right, here we go. I got this email a while ago, but uh, here we go. I'm just going to read it. And I apologize to anybody who sent in an email or a voicemail and hasn't heard it on the show. I'm so disorganized. I don't know if I, if like I put them all into this folder and then I don't know which I've played or read and which ones I haven't. So if you feel like you've written a banger email, but I don't trust you guys. Like you're going to say I haven't played it, but I have played it or I have listened so if you're sure you sent in some super banger fucking dopey story and I never read it, write me another one and tell me. And I know I owe a shit ton of gear. We're shipping today and tomorrow. You will get your gear. I promise. All of you. Now here is the email. Dave, been meaning to write this email for a while, but holiday and work shit kept me busy. You put a post on Instagram not too long ago of a family all dropping acid or something and asked if anyone tripped with the family. I have a good story for ya. Yeah, YA. It was probably around 2011 or 2012 on New Year's Eve. I had gotten some chocolate shrooms and decided to eat some. I was also able to convince my 60-year-old mother to indulge with me as well. Her first time ever doing hallucinogens, but she wanted to, and we were at the house, so I figured why not? I could think of a lot of reasons why not. We eat the chocolate and things are going great. Watching fireworks, tripping, having a great time. My brother decided to tie two of those big ball fireworks together and set them off. Well, that didn't work out as planned. One went off and the other we thought was a dud. Well, it turns out it wasn't. About five or so minutes later, one of my neighbors comes over to tell us, um, the front of your neighbor's house is on fire. We run into the street and see that dried sago palm in front of their house was up in flames. I'm freaking out, and I turn around, and I see my mother in the middle of the street, hands in the air, yelling, This is the best night of my life. Suffice to say, I forced her into the house and told her to speak to no one and stay put while I tried to run next door with buckets of water. It was a shit show. But in the end, there was no no real damage to the neighbor's house, and the cops and firemen didn't even bother coming to talk to us. Crazy at the time, but one of my favorite stories with my mom. Safe to say we don't shoot off fireworks anymore. Ha, ha, ha. 
Hope your holidays were great and that the family is doing well. Thanks for all you do, Dave. Much love to you, Quinn. You can say my name if this gets read. Thanks, Quinn. Any other family tripping stories out there, send them in. Quinn, you get socks. Send me your email. Um, There was a lot of really positive response to Tuan on the show, the meditation master. Uh, Craig wrote, Hey, Dave. Tuan Nguyen was the most beneficial guest to me that I've ever heard on Dopey. Wow. Thank you. His insight on spirituality just clicked. It made so much sense. I wonder if there's a way to get a transcript of that interview that I could send to some other people behind bars who could really benefit from it. Not just Montana, but also another guy I sponsor who's locked up. Craig. I I don't know. I, I mean, I get, I'm sure there is a way to get a transcript, but I will look into it. Lots of people loved Tuan, I have to say. And now we're going to hear... So we're going to get to Abby in a second. I just want to say that this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by the very, very great people at Discover Recovery, the greatest treatment center in the Pacific Northwest. The medical staff is on site, and they know what they're doing. They strive to provide the best treatment in a region that's been historically underserved. You throw a rock out there, you're going to hit a junkie. And out there at Discover Recovery, they have luxury accommodations. It is founded by our friend Chris Paulson, who's been on the show, who will be back on the show probably sooner than later. And to quote Chris Paulson, he says, I'm not great at selling. We operate with integrity. You personally know one of the co-founders. We are trying to do right by those we serve and have a true proven track record. For more information, check out discoverrecovery.com. When I was talking to Chris about it, he was like, just check our Yelp reviews. If you want to go to Discover Recovery, go to discoverrecovery.com. If you want vouching, check their Yelp reviews. And if you're in the Pacific Northwest, there's nowhere else to go. Discoverrecovery.com. Here is Abby Fickley. And I am joined by the vivacious and lovely Abby Fickley. So kind. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Fucking YouTube star, influencer, content creator, Instagram, massive person, TikTok, fucking half a million followers, and sober recovering heroin addict co-parenting woman from pittsburgh i I think it's the best introduction i've ever had people like my introductions i I couldn't have done that better myself wow that was phenomenal thank you welcome to my father's apartment (laughs) hey thanks for having me i like it here it's spacious i was saying i was surprised i love it well you probably you do podcasts all the time you know what not all the time but i i suspect i'm going to get more and more into them i do but have you ever shown up at anybody's senior citizen father's house and jewish public housing before no i haven't it's an adventure <laughs> it's right an, it's, it's incredible it's i love it it's a first and abby also ventured in to attend our dry dopey january at peoplehood and the phoenix unreal it was unreal incredible it was pretty good it, it was i left on a high and it, that's how you know it's good I just felt so, it was incredible. And Abby brought her dad. I, I did. I did bring my dad. He's a big part of my story and he's my favorite person to travel with. And it's like a free bodyguard when I walk around the city, you know? It's totally. <laughs> he had a blast. He, had a, he, had a he liked it? Oh, he loved it. He really did. Did he have, what about Chloe's? Chloe had a very risque set. So Is that weird to sit next to your dad when, so when she's talking about fucking God and such? 
that was a little rough. Uh-huh. It was a little rough. I think uh, towards the end of, and by the way, I love Chloe. I love Chloe. Um, but yeah, my dad got up like halfway through. He goes, I'll be right back. I think he just hit in the bathroom. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that was a little uncomfortable sitting next to him for that. But was he there when she posed the, the fucking scene and the hot boyfriend and choke me and I'm coming and all that? You know what? He was sitting right next to me at that part. Yeah. So that was pretty fantastic. I think that's actually after that part is when he got up and left. My daughter, right? My daughter won't let me walk into the room. She watches Outer Banks. She, okay. Which is some like Netflix teen show. I've heard about if that. If I one. walk into the room, she shuts it off. I don't blame so her. So imagine like fucking Chloe LeBranch, fucking God's father, whatever. Jesus is dad. Anyway. My dad I, reads at church every Sunday. Wow. So he was the right, he was the candidate, the perfect candidate Perfect. for the scene. But he can handle a joke. He can. He's a down-to-earth, really cool dude. So I knew he was okay, but it was funny sitting next to him like that. I'm like, okay. He did us both the favor by getting up, I think. <laughs> well, I I love having uh, heroin addicts on our show. Oh, thank you. So <laughs> I think it's very good that you're here. Me too. And when did you get high first? Oh, when did I get high first? High school. Um, I started getting high in high school. I didn't my, I have a very interesting story because I didn't get, I didn't become a junkie, like a hardcore shooting heroin addict until I went to rehab. Let's get there. <laughs> what was your first love in terms of using? My first love was Xanax when I, um, so I, I messed around with Xanax in high school. I, you know, my, my, a lot of my girlfriend's moms were prescribed it, you know? So that's how we'd get it. Um, first time what happens? Oh God. Um, I would say, Everything that I had ever felt up until then, which for me was a lot of anxiety, um, mainly anxiety. I dealt with a lot of anxiety as a kid. All of the negative feelings that I had ever had up throughout my childhood and my teens, that first time I took that benzo, I just remember thinking, oh my God, (laughs) this is the solution. I mean, it got rid of everything. And I knew that was going to be my thing. Experientially though, like who are you with? What happened? I'm going to be honest with you. I did a lot of stuff alone. I really did. Like my friends weren't as into it as I was. So I found myself like, I'll give you an example. I tell this a lot. When I was in high school, one time my mom was telling me that I needed to clean my room. I didn't want to clean my room. I was irritated about it. So I went downstairs. My dad had a bar. I cracked a can of Coke, poured half of it out, poured Jack Daniels into it, went up in my room, shut the door, started listening to music. And I, and I, that's how I got my room clean. But I was in high school. I mean, I was already utilizing substance to get things done. But I really, I really was isolated a lot. Like we, me and my friends, we'd party, we'd drink in the woods, but nobody was into pills the way I was. And so I really did a lot of it alone. So honestly. where did you get the first, the first Xanax? My, my girlfriend's mom, did one you, of my friend's mom. Did your friend give it to you or did you steal it from their medicine? Cabinet? She, she actually did give it to me, but and, well, and you know, I will say I, there were a few of us, we would go on blunt rides and we would pop a couple Xanax and we would just smoke a blunt, drive around, have fun, go home, um, stuff like that. But truly, it didn't get crazy until I went to treatment, until I went to rehab. But yeah, so we it, it wasn't, nothing terrible was happening. I wouldn't even say I was at the point of having problems yet. It was still fun in high school. Did you love weed like you love Xanax or no? No, absolutely not. Weed was just my social thing. That's what we did to hang out together and to go on rides because there was nothing else to do. Um, well, it's, it's great. Going on a ride, smoking weed. Yeah, I love it. We, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. But once I found this up, the pills, yeah, no, I could care less about weed. 
I was a, a total benzo addict as well. Oh, really? And when I and I, but I didn't do benzos until way later. Okay. And and I had the same exact response. I mean, I I I had a perfect response to weed, a perfect response to benzos, clonopin, Xanax, Ativan, Valium, whatever. Right. And a perfect response to heroin. And I wouldn't say I I can't pick one of them they're all okay. my drugs of choice right like i love them all and i love them <laughs> all together pick, just pick one i like them all together yeah the most i get that we i mean well, that heroin shows, and benzos i know it's 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 a killer combination it, it really literally. is it, literally <laughs> so when when does it get bad that you even need treatment well so yeah here's the interesting thing so basically i i get pregnant at 19 hold up hold up hold up you're using and is and I've seen your co-parenting guy online. So is he? Do you use with him? No. So here's what's interesting. I grew up in the suburbs. My parents did well. We had everything we needed. The father of my child grew up very opposite sort of thing. Surrounded by addicts. When he was like 12, he had a responsibility. He had to check on his uncle every day to make sure he wasn't overdosed on the couch. So every day at a certain time, it was Bobby. That's the father of my child's name. It was his job to go over and check on his uncle and make sure that he hadn't overdosed. And so he wow. he was around it very intense. I mean, he, his father passed away as a direct result. We found him with a needle in his arm. Oh, my, you were there? No, no, no. I wasn't, but Bobby Bobby was, unfortunately. Um, so Did you know, he know how much you were using at the time? No. Um, I tried my best to hide it, but it was this sort of thing where he'd go through my phone. He would see that I reached out to somebody for benzos. He'd smash my phone. Um, eventually he ended up kicking me out, um, because I just refused to get sober or stop. But here's the thing. I wasn't physically dependent yet. I think I was just like binging in a way. I couldn't do this if I tried now so perfectly that I, I wasn't physically dependent even. And then I got, I get pregnant. I have my daughter. How old were you? I was 19 when I got pregnant. I had her at 20, but once I had her, I was diagnosed with like severe postpartum depression. And this is whenever everything hit the fan. I mean, I was trying to create this white picket fence life with Bobby and our very young daughter. I was trying to build a career as a hairstylist. He was working with kids. Um, what was he doing with kids? Kids that were in trouble. He was a youth group support partner for so something. Bobby seemed like a very positive, sober person. Very positive, sober person. I mean, he smoked weed, but he didn't. Yeah, he would never mess with it because he saw what it did to his family. And he, he was honestly afraid of it. Like, so, And he always tried to tell me that and yeah he just he had the opposite thing going on there with drugs it, he wasn't going to use them if you know what i mean like he would choose to do other things with them sell them yes <laughs> so we can speak plain here. that's what um kind of connected us was he your was, I was he the your consumer source? well see just with weed the plug as they say uh, the plug as they say but just with weed anything else i i would get elsewhere he wasn't doing any any of that um, but that was when I had to like hide things. But when I was diagnosed with postpartum depression, I was prescribed benzos. And I mean, I, I think the bottle was gone in a week, which it got worse from there. But what happened was I was drinking on the benzos. So, so the reason I, I ended up needing treatment or people in my family were telling me I need treatment is because I was wrecking cars, you know, by the grace of God, I never hurt anyone, but that was my thing. I mean, I think I've totaled four cars drinking and driving um, because I was mixing the benzos. So that was kind of when my my family gave me this ultimatum, go to rehab or like we will not be a part of your life. And so my initial reaction was you guys are crazy because I wasn't physically dependent to anything. I didn't think I was an addict or an alcoholic. And I, you had the baby. 
I had the baby still. Bobby and I went right around when she turned one is when him and I split up. So I moved back in with my parents. With the baby. With the baby. But we were co-parenting 50-50. Moving back in with my parents, everything just continued to landslide. Like that was just not good for me. So they kicked me out. Um, I was real stubborn. And, and they the kept the baby. No, I, I, I had her. I still wasn't physically how dependent bad, yet. How, how bad was it with your parents though? Well, I mean, they, they, they just had had enough. I mean, me and my mom were fighting a lot. We were yelling at each other in the house. Like it just was, it was messy. I wasn't in a good place, but it was a lot of it. It was a lot of mental health stuff mixed in with using. But again, I wasn't physically dependent yet. So I moved out. I'm, I'm thinking that I'm going to prove to everybody that I don't need treatment and that I'm going to be successful and I'm going to be a hairstylist and all of these things. And it only took about a month that I you know, finally just gave in and said, okay, I'll go. I mean, I wanted my family back. At this point, they were threatening to take my daughter. Um, and my daughter's father was, you know, with her more than I was because I didn't have a solid place to live. So at that point, she was with them more. My parents and Bobby, they were kind of, each of them were taking care of her and I'd still see her. And, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a solid place to live. So that's, I, I, I was, you know, when we had our first child, I was using. Okay. And I, had a very similar situation and I was using and I would visit and uh, we, I couldn't even call it co-parenting because I, I would come once a week for two days gotcha. and I would be high and I would feel so badly about myself. It's terrible. It's a terrible feeling. It's really not easy. It's not. The other thing though is when it's, I find, I don't know if, if you have the same experience, but I bet it's similar. I can't remember half my life. So that's one of my biggest, that's one of the biggest things I struggle with. I try not to like do the guilt thing because it, it just, it'll kill me. But that is one of my biggest, there is a, there are a few years of her life that I just, it was the benzos. I mean. But I don't even remember. I don't even mean. You don't mean just your kid. You just mean life. I mean, I feel like I did so many benzos for so long that my memory mm -hmm. is really affected. No, me too. And I look back at that time, even other times and i don't know what the fuck is happening in my brain i'm sorry <laughs> oh no, i get it i remember one of the first times i got sober all i wanted i remember i would talk about this all the time was a machine that could play back my memories wow so i could see what the fuck was actually happening yeah yeah did no, you have a similar experience yeah i kind of did and i'm gonna be honest with you just to your point even now i struggle with short-term memory loss it's bad Somebody will say something to me and I'll, I have to add two minutes later. I'm like, would you like if you were to give me an address or tell me a number two seconds later? I don't remember. It's anyway, I'm sure that's all the drugs is a combination. But no, I totally get what you mean. And I I, I struggle with my memory. I work on that a little bit in therapy, actually, um, a little bit of shadow work, you know, try to bring some things back. Because my other thing is my childhood. I don't remember a lot from my childhood, which is interesting to me because I, I had a good childhood. So I don't know why, what I'm blocking out or what. But then it's like, what defines a good childhood? What defines a good childhood? Right. You know, because I, I, right. I grew up here. Was it good? Like, <laughs> I grew up in a super middle class family, great education, great friends. Me too. And yet still, still. I felt shitty about myself and I needed uh, to escape. Absolutely. And let me tell you, I'm the youngest of three. My older siblings, brother and sister, are closer in age to each other. There's a big gap. My parents, my mom was told she couldn't have any more kids. And then there came me. So, so how long was the age difference? Well, it's actually not terrible. My brother and I are like four, four years apart. 
and he's the middle child closer to him. So it's not terribly, I think what it was is they were so, they were just so close to one another. And so to me, it always, it was always on the the outside. I was on the outside and it was always the age thing. And then, you, you know, my mom's a doctor, my sister's a doctor. She followed in her footsteps. My dad's an architect, brother, computer science major. And I wanted to go to beauty school, but here's what's so funny. My parents were like, Oh, incredible. Go to beauty school, be a hairstylist. And I am like, I'm not good enough. They want me to go to college. They, my mom wants me to be a nurse. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> and I, I think for a really long time, I blamed my family for... I still do. Well, you know what? I, I I that's so fun to blame them. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I started to realize I was blaming them. Then I started to put the blame on myself. And once I started to do that work, I'm like, wait, no, I think it actually was them a little bit. So I'm putting the blame back on them. I think there's. <laughs> I think it's a healthy... There's a healthy mix. I got to be self-aware too. Exactly. You know, like, like there's a mix in the end, like as a sober person, we have to find our part. Yes. And and that's that's the whole deal. We do. But I love blaming my parents for shit. Fuck it. You You know know what? My dad was last night. My dad was talking to Hank about that. He's like, you know, I'm really proud of her for everything she did, but I didn't necessarily need her to talk about it over and over and over and over on the internet for millions of people to see. Well, I got that. I got to keep the story alive. See, I put my dad on the show all the time. I love that. I have him on the show all the time. And I and I off I, for a year, I think every time he came on, I blamed him for me being a heroin addict because how <laughs> sure could it not be? That. How could it not be his fault? Yeah. Right. I, you know, but um, I, I, I don't want to get carried away. Obviously, yeah. like I think I just think it's funny to blame your parents. For no, something. it is. And I want to say, too, like my dad is so proud of this and he loves it. and He loves that I do it. I didn't want to make that sound like he doesn't support like me being a content creator and doing things like this because he's downstairs wait like waiting for me outside because I was worried he was going to come up I was like do we have to go in the other room <laughs> what are we going to do no we're just going shopping later so and we've been walking everywhere I'm not even catching Uber so I'm enjoying the city walk but um so you're fucking how old are you at okay that point? so let's okay so to rewind I am about and, and I'm sure you relate to this but the amount of intakes we've done going into rehab and they ask you a thousand I'm like chronologically it's fucked. it's fucked yeah, yeah i'm never gonna say the same thing twice <laughs> i'm not gonna right. have the same but generally i'd say i was about 22 when i finally accepted that i needed to go to rehab now it's still questionable like when i talk about this online people will debate did i ever need rehab was it if i would have never went would i but I, i'm an addict everybody through has through. shit to say about everything true and there's nothing you can do about it now right but but i'm an addict through and through and i believe it would have manifested regardless but when i went to rehab um for the first time of course i had to go to california that was my one-way ticket to get to la where did you um, go <laughs> i ended up at michael's house in palm springs in the desert incredible rehab you know i was i was under 26 so i had my parents insurance still at that time but hold uh, up though before you went how bad was your consumption it wasn't that bad. I just wanted my family back. I was just partying and mixing benzos and alcohol. I was not physically dependent to anything. And were you getting along with Bobby? No, I had I all my relationships were basically destroyed. But Although, you wanted to fix it. I wanted to fix the relationships. And Bo- I'm going to be honest, this was the big issue when my parents and Bobby started to argue. Bobby didn't agree that he didn't think I needed rehab. He was afraid for me to go. He didn't think I needed it. My parents were the ones pushing it. So that's when they started fighting, which that escalates eventually. But um, so there were people directly in my life who were arguing about if I needed this or not. But all of the relationships were destroyed. I was losing my daughter. And that's why I went. And so although it was I was just partying and, you know, I, it was bad. I mean, I wasn't waking up to my alarm you know, to get Myla to the baby. Like I was not able to be a mom. So although my consumption wasn't 
crazy or I wasn't physically dependent yet. It was absolutely affecting my ability to be a mom, my relationships. But ultimately, I went to fix the relationships with my family. Your parents wanted you to, wanted you to go. And my Bobby parents wanted did, me to Bobby go. Bobby didn't want you Correct. to Correct. And you were like, I'm going to listen to my parents. I want to be a mom. I want to be a mom. I want my parents back. I wanted my family. My siblings weren't talking to me. Um, so yeah, so I went to Michael's house. And when I got there, the first thing I thought, you know, well, I'm seeing everybody detoxing, first of all. And I'm confused. I don't even think I knew what Suboxone was yet. I, I learned. Why would you? Well, listen, listen, right. But listen how wild this is, right? So I get there. Everybody's detoxing. They're asking me, you know, how much have you used and da, 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 da. And telling them, I'm like, well, I just like popping benzos and drinking. And they're, you know, they're asking me all these questions. And so anyway, I'm realizing what's going on. But the first thing I thought was, I don't belong here. I'm so different from all these people. So immediately I'm looking at the differences. Horrible way to start, right? right? Well, here's where it got kind of wild. They're all detoxing. I'm learning. I'm looking around. I'm realizing things. So they don't put me on a taper because I didn't need one. Well, about two hours later, the junkie in me, I walk in. I walk back into that office in, in the detox center and I go, I'm starting to feel it. I'm like, I got the chills. They gave me, you know, buprenorphine and had you talked to anybody to coach you up to do that i talked to people yes actually yes. the junkies in the back room they're like are you stupid you can get literally literally that's basically what happened it was a guy um he was cool we had fun we would lay on lawn chairs together and 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 sing songs we we missed music we didn't have music so we would just like sing songs but anyway he was the one who helped me with that but yeah so i i got and i absolutely felt it so that was and, and, you know, I, f- I forgot to mention this. In addition to the benzos, I had started dabbling with Perk-10s a little bit. I was swallowing them. So I was nowhere near where I would eventually get. I was just eating them. But still was all about the benzos. So when I took that buprenorphine or, you know, the Suboxone. You got high. I got really high. And I really chased that feeling from there. Because that was just kind of the opiate feeling. And I was used to the benzo high. But, but anyway, to move forward, I. Dude, but that's crazy. Because you really probably got the highest you ever were the first day you got to treatment. Literally. That's crazy. It's wild. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Well, that's why I say when I talk about it, it becomes this like big debate. Like, did she need treatment? Is she a drug addict because of rehab? But again, I think it would have manifested regardless. But it, it's crazy. And it gets crazier. It does. I can't wait to hear. And in terms of the rehab. So I, I, I finished this detox. This is an important piece of the story. I met a girl there who we were like this from day one. I mean, my, my bestie girl. We had so much fun together. And so when we moved into the 30-day inpatient after, after detox, they roomed us together. They put her and I together. Uh, so we're at Michael's house in Palm Springs in a 30-day inpatient in the desert. So we didn't leave there. Um, my parents did c- fly across the country from Pittsburgh to California for one of those little family therapy sessions. And I'll never forget that because a lot of what we spoke about was relapse prevention. And I remember like I could not wait for the conversation to end because look, I'm not going to relapse. This is stupid. This is crazy. Why are we even talking about this? I'm not if I don't want to use, I'm not going to use. And I was so I mean, I would go on to relapse tons of times, but I just I had no time for it. I was so annoyed by it. And, you know, obviously hindsight, I mean, it was just it was it was pretty incredible for them to come all the way out there and, and try to help me and try to rebuild a relationship. But anyway, so they leave. Now, my plan was to go to California, get sober, and come home and be, like, all better. That's what I thought was going to happen. When I finished the 30-day inpatient, they're talking a lot about outpatient, right, IOP. And they, you know, bring all these different ones to you. And there was a, a one called 449 in southern Orange County. And uh, it was a three-month outpatient. And they recommended it. So I decided to do it. 
So I didn't plan. You're like, fuck it. I live in California. Well, yeah. And, and this was always the issue because I like I'm a West Coast girl at heart. I mean, if it weren't for my daughter, I wouldn't be I would not be in Pittsburgh. I don't even know if I'd be on the East Coast. And so that was always what was so difficult was, you know, missing her. And I'd go home for every holiday, every birthday. And I really did a lot of jumping around. But when I went to this outpatient, I lived in a sober living in a mansion in Orange County. I mean, it's ridiculous out there. Uh, much different in Pittsburgh. And I would later learn that very very needed. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I would say I was a month into this outpatient treatment center when one day me and my, my friend, cause she, she came to the same outpatient as, as I, so we lived in this sober living together. One day we decided not to go to IOP, which, you know, you live in a sober living. It's kind of like school. You go from like 10 AM to three, five days a week. Um, there's therapists, groups, all that stuff. So that's kind of what this was. Well, one day her and I both decided to stay home from group. So it's just her and I in this house. And we're actually sitting outside at a table next to the pool, the in-ground pool. It's in our backyard. And we're working on step work, each of us. One, sounds nice. It sounds nice, yeah. right? Except five to ten minutes later, we're talking about how to cop heroin. And how, does that, how does that come up? Oh was my she a God. heroin addict? I, yes. So she was, You're in, like, yes, she was. Yeah. She was an IV heroin mm, yeah, user. Yeah. Um, I had no experience with that, obviously. And, um, you know, we knew somebody, we knew a kid, we knew a kid because he was in the treatment center with us until he wasn't. And so we knew what he was up to. And, and you're but, 22. Yeah, I'm 22. I don't even remember how this escalated. I really, really don't. I don't remember what the, it's, we were, we had our step work. I mean, my fourth step was in front of me, you know? So it was just, it's so bizarre. And I think it just speaks to addiction, how powerful it is. It's wild. It's also the nature of being young in treatment. Two of us, it and was dangerous. one person who has the wrong idea can so easily influence oh the other one. I remember Absolutely. the first time I ever shot dope. Like I had sniffed a ton of dope to the point where I was totally addicted. But I went to treatment with some Ivy junkie roommate and he's talking about it every night until I was like, I have money at home. You're what like, are, okay. what are we even doing here? <laughs> and, and, and we and we left. We came home because I had a check in the. I knew a check okay. had come, and we we scored, and they shot me up like for the first time okay. in treatment. Like, oh, we have that in common. It was like I left a twenty eight day to shoot up for the first time. Okay. What was, what was okay. your experience? So here was mine. So we meet up with him, and then he. Has How old is the dude? He's like he was like my age, early twenties. Paint a picture. <laughs> oh. What kind of guy is he? Okay. No, this is good. Okay. So kind of short, the definition of a baby face, very much a baby face, curly hair, curly, short, dark hair, small little guy with this baby face looked so innocent. Yeah. I, I was kind of attracted to him. Honestly, I, I mean, I, I had a thing for baby faces for a while, but um, so there was, you know, we were just being flirty or whatever, but he gets it for us. And here's the deal. Me, him and, and the girl that I, I was close with, we are at the San Clemente Pier the girl and I are technically still in this program. It's just, it was like nighttime. I don't remember what day of the week it was, but we were just, we had free time. You know what I mean? Um, so I was still living in sober living and going to these classes. It was in the evening. We went down to the St. Clemente Pier, which is something we commonly did. We would build fires and listen to music and just hang out at the beach. We didn't know what else to do. We were sober. So we go to the St. Clemente Pier. We go in the family restroom and I pull down the baby changing table and I sit on it. I did not want to shoot it. They did, obviously. They were both IV users. Did they share the needle? Well, yes. And this was tar. So 
I am thinking, oh, I'm just going to snort it. And then I, I see it and I'm like, oh, shit. Well, he still tried. He like put a little bit of water in it. We had, a, and he literally told me, he's like, just, I tried it. It's like very awkward to do it. Like it's that. so weird. I mean, it's just it's like when you get water in your nose in the pool, it's just a horrible feeling and it also didn't do anything. So I'm like, okay, screw it. It was the only way to get it in my system. I really, I was terrified. You didn't want to smoke it. You didn't I, have any tinfoil. No, we didn't. Yeah, we, we didn't have the supplies for that. And they're fucking in front of we you. We weren't prepared. Ready to shoot heroin. You're trying to squirt, or not even squirt, but just shove a piece of tar up your nose Literally. with water. Literally. See, what we would do is we'd put it in Afrin bottles and mix it with water and oh. squirt it up our nose. Oh, wow. Like nasal spray. Wow. That's Literally how, like nasal spray. Yeah, that's how we did it. Wow. Uh, until until I shot and my friend would smoke it. But you're like, fuck, okay, you didn't have an Afrin bottle. Yeah, you didn't, I didn't, you didn't have stumble what, upon we were prepared. Us at the time. Yes, yeah. exactly. You're like, wait a second. I could use it. You're like, I see the <laughs> I see the mechanisms in your brain <laughs> yeah. going off. So you're in the bathroom. So I'm, I'm sitting on the baby changing table in the in the family restroom at the San Clemente Pier. And I go, screw it. Well, now hindsight, knowing what I know now in the moment, I didn't realize this kid was an idiot. He's trying to do it in my in my wrist. Okay. And, and he's struggling. We're having issues. And I'm like, this is a nightmare. I'm just being poked and stabbed. And anyway, eventually. It's also very like for everyone to see. Well, well that too. It's just a horrible spot. No. I ended up getting a little bit of cellulitis. I, it was like swollen and I had to take a couple antibiotics once I got caught. But I'll get to, I'll get to that. Anyway, he, he, he hit me. and um, Where did he wind up hitting you? We, we got it. We ended up getting it in the wrist. It just took him like 10 tries. It was just awkward because that was the first body picked and I didn't know what I trusted him. <laughs> I trusted him. <laughs> um, anyway, once he once it, we were successful. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, it changed everything. I screw the benzo, screw the Percocet, screw it all. I mean, there was nothing. There was nothing that could beat that for me. That feeling, the process of it, the whole ordeal. I mean, and it was also the quickest my life went to, to shit. shit. Like. Well, it's, I'm realizing you also had the baby at home and they're telling you, you stay out there and get well. You're 22 years old. You're at the very tip of your addiction. Yeah. And you're going to live in this mansion in Orange County, this fantasy. Yes. And the baby has to be so far away in your head. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're, I could see the look on your face. You're like still in pain over the fact oh, yeah. that you made these decisions oh, horrible. so many years ago. It was horrible. And, you know, we had a plan. Don't say anything. We we chose it on a day where we had three days before we were going to be drug tested. Like, we had the whole setup. Except the girl just, like, totally lost her mind in, in treatment the next day and was like, oh, I use. And just totally ratted on herself. So, I mean, it, it, at first I was pissed. I'm like, are you kidding me? She's, like, crying. I'm sorry. Obviously, that's technically the right thing to do but at the time i was so i was so mad at her so she felt guilty and she goes yeah. to like who her she her therapist she went to her that we all had her and i had a each had a different therapist but she went to her therapist it was she also the night that we did it she was calling everybody she was acting up i told her i'm like relax stop calling everybody she called the guy she had a crush on that lived in the so really I'm like, you need to. She's like drunk dialing. Yes. Dope. Yes. I've never heard of that. Yes. That's exactly what she was doing. Yeah. yeah and then dude picked her up. Right. I'm um, like, girl. That makes sense. Well, I'm like, we're supposed to be sitting at the pier just enjoying this. Right. Come on. So I stayed with dude. It wasn't enough for her. It wasn't enough for her. So did you hook up with baby face? I guy? did. I did not hook up with baby face, but okay. I can't. We kissed. We kissed. But that was Hi. it. On we, the pier. Hi on the pier. We also. Oh, never, I don't know if I want to get into that. We did do a Ouija board on the lifeguard chair. 
That's why we kissed. Something happened on the Ouija board. He did that. He's like, oh, I told us we, we should kiss. Idiot. Wow. That's, that's, that's <laughs> smooth. Smooth. Smooth baby face guy. Smooth. Yeah, exactly. But no, anyway, so that night ended. Next day came. She, you know, ratted on herself. I got angry. So I'm like, well, I got to rat on myself because she's going to, It. I knew it was going to come out. And I knew it would be better if I told my therapist before they found out. So here's what was interesting. They sent her to a whole other treatment center. I never saw her again. I was the last of my friends. Did they test you? Um, well, I ratted on myself, so they so they knew that um, I had it in my system as well. But what what they did punishment wise for each of us was just so different. And I think what they were doing was they just wanted us separated. I think they knew that we were bad for each other. So they sent her to a whole different treatment center in like Sacramento, and she falls in love with some dude because we kept in touch. They let me stay, and so I did stay, and I continued on attempting to get sober. Now. I had to go to some, they made me go to detox. Obviously, I didn't need it. It's like a protocol, I guess. But it was only like 20 minutes away. So I was staying in Orange County. So I only went for the weekend. But the problem with that was I knew with the health insurance thing and being there, I knew that my parents were going to find out that I had relapsed because I was on their health insurance and I had to go to this stupid little intake detox thing for a day or two. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, the, the guy called my mom. I don't know why to this day, but the nurse called my mom and told her what was going on. So, you know, I had booked a flight to go home to see Mila for Christmas and my dad canceled that flight um, when he found out. Devastating. Devastating. And, you know, I'll never forget. I was on my, I was in a, you know, a druggy buggy and out a van on my way to um, group. And I'm on the phone with my dad and he, and I'll never forget this. He said to me screaming, he said, what are you? A fucking junkie? And in that moment, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I go, yeah, yeah, dad, I guess I, I guess I am. But it, you know, I'll and never. That's why he's responsible for your heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. We'll keep this list going. Yeah. All the reasons why this is no. not my fault. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just <laughs> no, saying. I know. It's like, he said that you had shot dope for the first time and it, and it clicks in in this fuck you sort of way. Yes. Everything is burning yes. and you're like, fuck you. Yes. Like, I'm like, you know what I am? And, and I had this whole thing where I'm like, you always want, you wanted me to be a drug addict so bad. You wanted me to go to rehab so bad. Here I am a fucking junkie. That was kind of my reaction. Like you, we pushed me to come here. So here we go. I'm a drug addict. Now I can get something out of this rehab, you know? Um, but nonetheless, I would go on to my life got worse from there. I didn't get sober at that treatment center. I met a guy. And um, in fact, for a little while, we were doing okay. I worked in treatment. So oh, you had rehab romance. I had rehab. Oh, oh, I had rehab. Yeah, a couple of them. I can imagine. A <laughs> couple of them. Um, but yeah, this main one, we, I moved him home to Pittsburgh. He moved in with my mom and he dad. He was like your true love. He was my true love. We were going to get married. What happened with Bobby? Oh, Bobby was just at home taking care of my daughter. Were you guys, and the, the relationship was not in so, effect? So, no, you know, here's the thing about Bobby and I. Before we ever dated, we were only dating for three months when I got pregnant. But here's what's crazy. Bobby and I were best friends for years. I mean, he had a girlfriend. I had a boyfriend. Right. He was that guy. If I'd fight with my boyfriend, I'd call him. He'd pick me up from a party if I needed a ride. But it wasn't romantic. But it wasn't romantic. I never liked him like that. Right. Until after high school. Once I graduated and was in beauty school, that's when we kind of started, um, you know, so... Him and I's friendship foundation that we had first never to this day it never left. I mean, I tell people all the time when they see us online because it's confusing. They're like, "Are you together?" Or you were very like flirty, funny, like, and we've always been that way. So when I was in California, he was taking care of Mila, and my parents were helping. When I was in inpatient, my therapist recommended that I 
give custody to my par- my portion of my rights, my daughter, to my mom and dad. And I did it. I gave custody to my parents. So they had half and Bobby had half. That was another thing Bobby didn't agree with. He was so mad at me. Why? He he just he knew he I was, just thought you were like not taking accountability well bobby bobby actually was in my defense in the way of you know i don't think she needs this or i, I don't think she, he she was advocating lose, for he, you. he was he was advocating for me um but my whole thing was i wanted my family me and my who represents me to be a, a big part of my daughter's upbringing you know of course i didn't plan to be gone forever but you know i didn't want it to be just bobby's family i wanted my family to be raising her as well and i couldn't be there so my parents and Bobby were 50-50 and they were co-parenting while I was gone. But Bobby and I would stay in touch. I mean, we would talk on the phone. We were cool. Everything was chill. He just, he wanted me to come home. He knew he was there. He was seeing my daughter and her in, in the state of not having a mother. He was witnessing that on a daily basis every day. And he just wanted me home. He wanted me back. I got a little carried away and distracted out there. I had some fun. I, I got a job in treatment. What were you um, doing? I was actually the manager of a detox center. I, I was an intake specialist, and I got my RAD-T1 certification. I was a registered alcohol and drug tech. And, and you weren't using. And I wasn't using. I Again, it's it seems so confusing because I had these little phases. No, it's not, you I, know? I, I don't think it's that confusing. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, so, yeah, I worked in this treatment center. It was it was in San Clemente, so right by the San Clemente Pier. I spent a lot of time in, like, Dana Point, San Clemente area. Um, so I worked in the treatment center and then I was a house manager at the sober living. So I, I lived for free in this mansion in California, paid no rent and then made really good money at this treatment center. So I ended up buying a car and this is where things got confusing for me. I was staying sober. I had got a car. I had a good job. I'm like, why am I building this beautiful life out here when my daughter's all the way across the country? And that's when the guilt, huge hits. disconnect. Yes. And that's what ultimately led to the re- the relapse. And were you with Rehab Romance at that I point? I was, yes. This uh, we, we had got an apartment together. Um, was he about his recovery at the time? He was. We were both sober. And I'm going to be honest. So here's, here's... Might as well be honest. <laughs> might as well. He was a shooter. Like, he was a hardcore IV user. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very much so, like... Uh, he knew I had done it that one time. But he also knew that even though I had done it that one time, that didn't necessarily mean I knew what this was really like. And and he didn't want me to know what this shit was really, what this life was really like. He knew. I mean, he lived on Skid Row. Like he was rough. So I fast forward. I go home for Christmas to see my daughter. We're both him and I are both sober. He stays back in California. I go home to see her, and you know we had a great time. I was home for a few days. I'm leaving. And I, I mean, it was just horrible. I, I'm like, why am I leaving her? What am I doing? Going back to this life I built? It just, it did, it made no sense. I didn't make it through the Pittsburgh airport before I got hit. I was at the TJI Fridays <laughs> at Pittsburgh International Airport. And I on sat your way back to On LA. my way back to California. Cal- Orange County. Yep. I sat at the bar and I ordered a drink, an alcoholic drink. And then I ordered another one. And then I ordered a couple more on the plane. Do you think you were like depressed because you were leaving the baby? Absolutely. How old was the baby? Mm. Um, two and a half little. And so I was miserable. And you were like what, I was, 23, 24? Yep, exactly. Yep. So, um, I didn't even make it. By the time I got back to LA, I was already texting my boyfriend who we had. Yeah. We had that apartment. I texted him and I said, I need you to go get shit like right now. And he was sober. He was sober. And uh, I know it's horrible. And, and it's not horrible. <laughs> just, I was responsible for both of our relapse. No, you for weren't. Sure. No, you weren't. He, he, if he's, he made the decision. Sure. I mean, like if he but was, I was manipulative, I was that girlfriend that was like, if you don't go get it, I'm going to go get it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, 
It's he like, didn't want that. He, of course not. He wanted to keep you happy. <laughs> uh-huh. and he, But mostly, he wanted to get high. <laughs> I mean, come on. Mostly, he was like, finally. I'll give myself I too much get, credit. Yeah. Stop, because that is exactly what it was. Yeah. He never wanted the sobriety shit. He wanted to be with me. You are you, you just nailed it. So eventually, he cops. Oh, my God. In a week, we were living on totally an air mattress, out. totally strung out, sick as a dog. I had never been that depressed, scared. I mean, I felt like I was dead. Does he pick you up at the airport with needles and dope? So no. So he picked me up and then we went home and it it was like this in the car. I'm bitching about, you know what I mean? It was this process of me begging him. And so once we got back to our place, he ended up leaving and going to get it. And then, of course, got rigs. And so that's when I really learned how to do this shit. So that's when I learned how to do it myself. That's how I learned it all. But I... I mean, I, I can't even put into words the feeling when when it's not good and when you're not high and when you're sick and when you're strung out. And I can't even explain how horrible I felt. I mean, just empty. I was I was essentially dead. I mean, did I was you go, gr- did you go back to that job? So we were working it for a while without them knowing we were using. Now, here's what's so wild. The people that own this treatment center, they were very religious. They actually got me started my introduction to church and worshiping. They were like my second set of parents. I called them. They were really good to me. I mean, she helped me get the car, made sure I had enough pay stubs, and you know, she was the one paying me. And they were they were incredible to us. Um, but eventually, they started to sense it. You know, here's what's so terrible. I was in charge of like if we'd have an AMA where we'd have somebody leave. I was in charge of disposing the ad. It's very convenient. It's very convenient. And you're using. And I was disposing them. <laughs> I was getting rid of them. Yeah, you were con- yeah consuming them. Yeah, getting rid of them down your throat or in your arm. Yes. So. Yeah, it was mainly the Ativan, um, but that is when they they started to catch on. And so, what did how how did they catch on? I'm trying to remember what what exactly it was. It, it was the boy. It was my boyfriend. He was the one that kind of gave it away first. I think he you know, he was like he worked there too. I forgot to mention this, but he was like a supervisor type of thing. He would work the graveyard shifts, just watching the clients. Um, so he'd just sit on the couch or whatever, you know, make the beds. I would do like vitals, checks. I'd have to put them into the computer and that kind of stuff. He was like the overnight tech he guy. He was the overnight tech guy. And and yeah, the graveyard shift guy. So he was just nodded out on the couch. He's the, the guy idiot. You, you smoke cigarettes with when you wake up in the middle exactly. of the night. Exactly. Yeah, he's the one you drink the coffee with. Yes, yeah, yes. up on the porch in you the morning. You tell him your life story in the middle of the night. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, listen, I had a woman one time. She, I will never forget her in a treatment center. And she sat, sat with me. And <laughs> those people are important when you're struggling. It's funny, but... Yeah, he was nodded out on the couch. He gave it away. And then I forget what happened with the medication, but I remember being afraid. So they found out that he was high because he because he nodded out at work. He nodded out at work. And then in, additionally, he asked them for like a paycheck up front. <laughs> that's he, always a red flag. That's always a red flag. As a recovering junkie yeah. tech. Can I yes. get the money in cash? Yeah. Can I get my paycheck that's supposed to come in two weeks that I haven't even worked for yet today? Maybe you can just advance me some that's, heroin this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just yeah, cut everything else yeah. out. Just so so that's kind of what did it. Now, well, the only thing I knew to do when shit would hit the fan was run to the opposite place. So when shit would hit the fan in Pittsburgh, I'd run to California. When shit would hit the fan in California, I'd run home. So you get fired? So we didn't um before we could get fired, we ran. Like truly just dipped. And when's the first time you find yourself addicted to heroin? That, oh, when when I asked him to get it like a week and a half, two weeks later. When I asked Every him, day. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. And it you guys had bad. money. Yeah, from working, we were, be, we were getting paid well and we were able to use while working there. So for a while, it was working until it wasn't, right? But here's what, here's what happened. 
so, you know, they, they caught on the owners of this treatment center. We didn't want to get in trouble. We wanted to run to Pittsburgh. I'm on the phone with my mom, mom, after coming home, it's really making me realize, like, I think I'm ready. I need to come home. They let me and Tyler move in with them where my kid is half the time. Did they know how fucked you guys were? They had no idea. They thought we were sober. What did Tyler seem like? Well, here's what's so funny is- I'm imagining him needle hanging out of his arm, covered with tattoos. I'll show you. No, actually, he is so handsome. He's a very good look. He has one that tattoo. Doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a needle hanging well, out no, of his arm. Well, no. No, he does. You're right. But he, he has one tattoo. Actually, it's funny. He has a big panda. He has a real big panda on his stomach. I was just- what the fuck is that? Um, but no, he's he was a very funny guy, uh, trauma funny guy. He'd been through a lot of shit. Um, very much like won't speak with a therapist. Very like humor and comedy is is his gig. And he's hilarious. And he is so good looking. And he's currently on Skid Row shooting heroin. And he's been for the past, for since since I left him, since I, the day I said goodbye to him. Um, but yeah, so he we moved back to Pittsburgh. And we had this idea that we were going to do our last little bit we had right before the airport, fly to Pittsburgh, and start over. That is what we thought until we get to Pittsburgh. We go to bed. You know, my dad picked us up from the airport. We wake up the next day, and we are sick as dogs. Sick. With nothing. And, so- and think, I didn't know anybody in Pittsburgh because I didn't start until California. So we were, like, really screwed. You knew where to get weed and Xanax. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly what we did. Um, and then, you know, those we, are good, we got there eventually. Those are good detox medications, though. No, they are, but... So how did you find heroin in Pittsburgh? Um, actually, a guy that we... Do you like how I'm uncovering all, no, of, your, all I do. of your past? I do, because listen, it was a guy that, I had, that we had met in California who was from Pittsburgh. And he had moved back well before we did. But him and Tyler kept in touch. Um, so that is how we ended up getting it from him in Pittsburgh. But we met that dude in California. So it was still the, you know, people you meet in rehab were the people that ended up being our, our plugs. But... Here's how everything ended. This was very short-lived, living with my parents and using. We weren't trying to get, we weren't trying to detox, unfortunately. We were just using. And then, you know, because this is what we do as addicts, we um, justify You're things. You're not working. I, I did get a job at P.F. Chang serving tables. And, do you have money? Yes, and Tyler was working. My dad, you know, he's an architect, so he, he knows a lot of builders. He got Tyler, like, a job doing construction work. So... He was doing that. My dad was driving him to work every day. The two of them were going to work every morning together. I mean, God bless my parents for doing this for us. They wanted us to succeed. They really did. But the problem was we were not sober. So there was no foundation there to build from. So what happened was one day Tyler wrecked a Lowell machine. And he was, I don't know what you call those high. things. Yes, he was high and he wrecked. What kind of a machine is it? I don't know. What are those things that you sit in and you steer it and it has like a bulldozer? Bulldozer. Like, yes. a, but a little one. I okay. Don't, a, small, a, a small bulldozer. Okay, a small bu- bulldozer. I don't know the name of construction <laughs> I don't equipment. Either. Do you see where I live? I don't so, know about this stuff. No, neither do I. But but yeah, he so he wrecked he wrecked a, a mini bulldozer. But you know what's wild is even then we we were managing, we were pulling it off. Here's when it all ended. And I'll be honest, this is like one of my one of my God stories. I mean, I have two big God stories. This is one of them. So I'm sick as a dog. I need to cop. Tyler's at home. We were to pick up Milo from Bobby, the father of my child, in like an hour and a half or so for the just like the co-parent switch. And I'm copping for us real quick. So I'm in the city of Pittsburgh. Oh, this is wild. Um, because this ended up coming full circle very recently. We, I, so I go get the shit and I'll never forget this. Cause when I walked out of the girl's house, she handed me a pack of ramen noodles and she said, carry this in your hand. Like very obviously walking to your car. What I found out hindsight is they were being watched and 
course I didn't know, but so they, they set you up with the ramen. So they knew who you were. Well, no. So she didn't set me up. She knew that they were kind of being watched by cops. So she just gave me the ramen noodles just to make it look like, yeah, I, you had something. I had something, but what I didn't know is the police were watching and they watched me walk out of that house. I got in my car. I was so sick. I couldn't wait. Mm. I start doing my thing. Mm. I have a spoon in my hand and I look up and there is a black like giant SUV parked horizontally in front of my car. And there is a SWAT team surrounding my car. So I, I don't know why I threw the spoon like I just threw it and I just kind of shuffled around. I had a bundle and I shoved it in the back of my phone case. And, you know, anyways, yeah, this was bad. This this was a really bad situation. Um, long story short with this one, I um. I got a possession charge. But that's, so wait, they they roll up on you they roll while up. you're shooting up? Yeah. And the, yeah, they took me to the station. This is making you anxious. Yeah, because this is a crazy story because they got busted that day and I felt really guilty. Like the couple I, that sold it to you. Yes. They, they got busted that day. Me walking out of the house and having that. I don't know if they needed like one more little thing to be able to go in. But they they went. They raided it's that on, home. It's not on you. It's on your, I blame your parents for that. <laughs> dad told me doesn't no i'm but, just saying like i mean that's interesting to me that you feel uh guilt here, that. here's why i'm gonna tell you why so so they get raided they had a kid in the house a oh, little kid man. a two-year-old right they found a lot they got caught with a lot in that right. in that basement but here's the thing after this happened my mom was like a, my mom was like afraid like really afraid she couldn't sleep she was afraid you know locking the doors and just really freaked out that is where my guilt comes from. Like the fact that my mother was afraid. Is that how she found out you relapsed? Yeah. So that this is how every everything hit the fan when I got arrested. The cops did release me, which I'm grateful for. I didn't have to spend the night in county. They did release me, but I didn't come home to get Mila. So that was the thing. I was supposed to be getting Mila from her dad and I was nowhere to be found. So Tyler and my parents are just at the house like trying. So what did you do? Well, so I left the police station. I had my mom's car and I just drove home. I drove home. I walked up the driveway and my mom was immediately like, you need to go to rehab. Now, here's what's interesting. Were they, you sick at that point? Um, yes, I was. I didn't get to use. I was still sick. Yes. Well, they didn't know Tyler was using. We tried to pull it off in this way where Tyler was sober so that hopefully I could go to treatment for 30 days. He could live with my parents, stay there, and then I'd come out. Well, the cop, you know, told my dad, it's like, I, that, that kid's using. I promise you that other kid's using. So my dad kicked Tyler out. Tyler's in Pittsburgh, knows nobody. My parents kicked him out. I went to treatment in Pittsburgh, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to go back to California. I'm sure. It's warm. Yeah, right. So I, I, I made it happen. I made a couple phone calls in the treatment center. I was only in that treatment center in Pittsburgh for three days before somebody came and got me. I left, got on a plane with Tyler, and we went back out to California. How together. did Tyler get on get the flight? Um, we had, we did it through insurance. We knew a guy, um, I body broker kind of thing. Well, so I have to say kind of this guy, he does good. Like it, he's really not just straight up body broker. He just get, he does, he gets people into treatment. He's not one of the ones that like feed you drugs first. You know, he's not like one of those. See, I wanted one of those for myself. Well, it is nice. I never, I never, get I never like got that. that either. No, how about I got in and out. He used to get us in and out before we go to treatment. That's a decent deal. Yeah. That's why I liked him. How about. The powder of Pittsburgh versus the tar okay. of California. Um, I, yeah, I was a powder girl. Well, I'm an East Coast girl, so I'm a powder girl at heart. I feel like you need to get some fucking crazy tar to not be a powder person. You know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And I don't know if I ever got that. I mean, I got good tar, but I can't I'd, say. I, I got very little good tar. It was uh, everything I did in L.A. was like I lived in L.A. for years. I didn't know that. And everything I got in L.A. was the garbageist of the that's garbage. how i felt too but about I, it except i was in treatment one time in la 
and I told the story a million times, but there's some Armenian kid checks into treatment and the treatment was structured like it was this group of buildings with a, a, a grass in the middle. Okay. And some dude throws a tennis ball full of tar into the grass from outside his buddy or something. And it was this tar with this stamp that was nice. And like, and I was on buprenorphine, but I did it anyway. So I never did nice tar. What happened when you did all the buprenorphine? Did you still get high? No, I was blocked. Oh, damn it. And like your friend in treatment, I ratted myself out because I felt so guilty. Oh, well, you know, at the end of the day, that's the right thing to do. Well, I was fucking out of my mind. Out of your mind. Because I the buprenorphine had, had hit me in this crazy speedy way. And I, I was like crazy. And I, I got kicked out immediately. But so you go home, you go back to LA or Orange County, you go back to California, strung out, changing rehabs. And, yeah. and do you go to the same well, spot? Can I tell you what's so funny? Where we ended up going is where we worked. Stop. I swear to God. Here's what's so funny about that treatment center. It, it, by the way, it, they it, they shut it down now. Or no, they sold it. They sold it to the guy that, the body burger, but he he really is just like a marketing guy, but he gets people into treatment. But that treatment center, it was called Thor, and it was an acronym for the House of the Rising Sun. And it was, a, you could go in as couples. Why did they call it the House of the Rising Sun? They were very religious. I think it had to do with like, I think it was like a God thing. I don't know exactly the definition or the reasoning, but they were very religious. It wasn't religious. It was, no, I don't think it was. I, I don't believe it was actually. But either way, it was a couple's treatment center, which I don't believe in. I don't think you should get sober with a partner ever. I've never even heard of that. I, yeah. So you oh, and Tyler yeah. check in like junkies in love? Yes. Junkie love? Yes. Wait, can I tell you how junkie love this is? We're laying in the bed together sick. Junkie love is the, the nurse best. comes in and just drops suboxone under our tongues as we're laying there together watching Netflix. How romantic. How romantic. That, that right there. Junkie love. Junkie love, ladies and gentlemen. Tell you what. There are better things in life. However, if you have a couple's, <laughs> if you have a couple's rehab, you better name it Junkie Love. It was, yeah. Well, I know, right? Like, come on. There's not a lot of them because it doesn't work. I've never heard of it. They don't work. So That's what why. happened? So what happened? It didn't work. <laughs> he didn't want to be sober. This poor guy still still doesn't want to be sober. So I had the goal of getting sober and getting back to my daughter. He all he knew was that he wanted to live on the West Coast. He wanted to stay in California. So we knew it just wasn't going to work. What ultimately led to our split is we're in this treatment center. We're in the 30-day portion at this point. We're detoxed. He's ready to go. He's ready to go. He wants to use. He wants to get high. I'm begging him to stay, like crying on my hands and knees, begging this guy to stay. You loved him. I loved him. There's a guy standing behind me in the hallway named Charlie from Boston. Incredible guy. I didn't know him from a can of paint. It's very funny what you can remember and what you can't. Yeah. Charlie from Boston. You don't know him from a can of paint. Well, I, at the time I didn't. But, he, you know, I was brand new in this. We had just left the detox. Now we're in the the sober living. So there's other people. It's a mixed house of men and women, which it was kind of fun. But um, so this Charlie guy, he's watching this go down. I'm bawling, begging dude not to leave. He, go, he looks at me, he goes, hey, he goes, I know I don't know you. He's like, I know this isn't my place. He was like, but I heard you in group say you have a daughter. He's like, you, you got to stay. He's like, you got to let him go. He's going to leave. You, you cannot go with him. I didn't know this guy. I didn't know this guy. But in that moment, I remember looking up at this stranger and feeling the fear of doing that, of, okay, I'll stay. It was terrifying to me because I'm on my own now. I'm alone. I got to get sober. I'm not going to have, I'm not going to be able to rely on or have this codependent man right. with me. And it was this pit, this like big fear. fear. And I turned around and I said, I'm not going. And he left, and I and I I never saw him again. Tyler. Tyler. Now 
this now here's where my relationship begins with Charlie, who died as a direct result. That's why I'm like this right now. But he ended up passing away a few years later um, as a direct result of this disease. He, he was drinking and driving on his motorcycle in Dana Point and he, and he wrecked and he hit his head. And so, but, but my, my Charlie, like we spent a lot of time together. You think he was strategically trying to get with you by making you You know stay? what? I think, I think that he probably, you know, he probably thought I was pretty, whatever. I want this girl to stay. This could be fun type of thing. But we didn't know each other well enough yet that right. I, I can say he had okay. like a crush or anything. Right. But what I will tell you is I stayed sober. What ended up happening again, him and I became the house managers of that sober living. Wow. So Charlie and I are working together. We had this white Yukon and we would drive around sort of druggy buggy. We would take everybody to meetings. I, I was sober. shotgun. I got sober and I was shotgun. And we would have so much fun. We'd blast music. We would take all these kids to church. We would take them to meetings. We'd take them to lunch. I mean, we just, we, we, it was a blast. So you have a serious issue with codependency. Um, I did. I did. <laughs> But guess I've been single for two years, ladies right. and gentlemen. We're working it out. We're working on it. Um, but I used to be, I couldn't live without a boyfriend. I mean, I always had one. And it took a while to even realize that I was doing, it was like the vine. I wouldn't let go of this one until I could right. jump to the other right. vine. Right. And that's always how I viewed it in my head. Um, yeah, you know, so it, it um, what happened was I did stay sober. Ended up feeling like I was ready to go home. Me and Charlie were arguing. This is actually horrible. I left without saying goodbye to him. It did get a little bit like romantic, a little bit like we we each. Um, it wasn't romantic. No, no, it it was like it got a little bit rom like we we didn't date, but we were flirty with each other. Oh, I and, thought you guys were like a couple. Oh no, uh uh. Oh, I misunderstood. No, no, we um no. When Tyler left, we got really close. We you called were like. Partners. We called each other buddy. That right. was our nickname right. to the point where people would make, they'd be like, buddy, buddy, because we'd say it so often. But yeah, we hey, buddy. That was always our nickname for one another. And he would always, real heavy accent, he'd say, you're a G kid. He says, you're going to find some someone real great for you. You're, you're a G kid. He would always say that to me. So it wasn't a romance. It wasn't like some weird setup thing. No, not at all. Not at all. He was looking out for you. We, he was looking out for me. He was a lot older than me at the time. I was in my, you know, 20s, um, young 20s. He was um, almost 40. But we had a lot of fun together. And when I finally was ready to go home, you know, him and I were arguing. I left without saying goodbye to him. And then I never saw him again. That was a really big lesson I learned about life. But I, I, unfortunately, when I went back home this time, I wouldn't stay sober this time either because I didn't have any tools. I was staying sober because of the atmosphere I was in. I didn't have any tools. I, I had never done AA still. I would go to meetings, but I never worked the steps yet. So you leave Orange County again, again. to go back to Pittsburgh again. sober. sober. But not working program. But not working dry. the program. Called dry. Exactly. Right. But, I, but I did relapse. In Pittsburgh. Yes. Same dealer situation um, or something else? Yeah. Yes. Same dealer. Okay. Okay, so here's the deal. So I get back. I don't have any tools because I didn't actually do much work. It, I was just in a, a temporarily good environment that was keeping me sober, I'd say. So I come home and, you know, it was a real big struggle the first few days I'm living with my parents. So I end up deciding that I'm not going to touch heroin. This is another one of my justifications. I said, I'm only going to do Percocet. I'm not going to touch heroin and it's going to be okay. Just a little bit. Just a little just, bit. Just a little bit. The problem is I couldn't afford that habit <laughs> at all. The Percocet The Percocet. Habit. It's too expensive. It was 30s. I, I was doing 30s. Um, so here's where everything hits the fan. So I, I end up taking my father's checkbook and I start writing checks to you myself. You eating the Perc 30 stuff. No, I was snorting them. You were snorting them. I was snorting them. You were like, I'm not going to shoot dope. I'm just going to snort Percocet. Exactly. That was my like, I'm a good girl decision. So, um, it's funny because you're like, I can't afford it, but I can steal my dad's checks just so I don't have terrible. to shoot dope. 
terrible. That's the, the interesting You're exactly part of the right. You're exactly right. I don't want to shoot dope, so instead I'm going to steal my father's checks and forge his checks so I can so I can snore Percocet <laughs> instead of shoot dope. Yep. That's great. It's great. That's the yeah. Th- those are the sort of the, the type of justifications it's that I had in addiction. Rationalization. Rational. Yes, yes. 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 So um, I got away with this for a couple months. Again, I was working at PF Chang's. Again, I was I was a waitress. They they actually called me. I had a nickname. It was called Where's Abby because I was always in the bathroom trying to get a vein and I could never get a vein. I'd be gone for an hour. So you were done snorting the the perk. No. Okay. No. You know what? No. I didn't mean. No. No. Listen. No. No. I didn't. That was your first run at PF Chang's. I didn't mean to confuse you. My first run at PF Chang's. I was doing that, but they were still calling me. Where's Abby? Where's Where's Abby? Abby? Um. Anyway, so I'm I'm trying to work. And by the way, the ironic part is me working there again. That was me trying to make amends with P.F. Chang's, even though I was using again. Because I just left. I didn't I didn't tell them I was quitting. I didn't leave appropriately. And I wanted to. You went back to make money. You didn't go back to make amends. Well, no, no, but I did in an egotistical way. I'm not even giving right. myself like, any credit. It was very egotistical. It's like, explain. I, I just I just I wanted to go apologize to them for leaving and not um, not quitting appropriately. I had a shift that I just didn't show up for. It just wasn't right. And you wanted to show them how well you were doing also. Yes. In an egotist. It wasn't right. genuine. Right. But I also wanted a job. <laughs> so make there cash. were motives. Exactly. Um, so I'm working at P.F. Chang's again, just a little bit. Um, and then I ended up getting a job where I was working with mentally challenged people. And I'll be honest with you to this day, it's one of the greatest jobs I've ever worked. What were you doing with them? So I was literally like a housekeeper. They all lived in like a home together. I would help take care of them. So I'd make them dinner. Um, one of them would have swim every Tuesday night. I would take her to her swim. She was like 50 years old. I would drive her to her swim class. She would say, Abby, watch me dive this 50 year old woman. And I'd go, you do a great, oh my God, it was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. But I was using, I was doing Percocet. And were you with Myla? Um, so Myla was still, you know, the custody thing was with my parents and Bobby. And because I was living with my parents, I did. I got to see her half of, yeah, 50% of the time. Was that stressful? I mean, no, I was, I was very grateful that I was in a position in, in an environment where I could see her and be a mom because I know my own place. I couldn't afford it. And they still had rights over her. Um, and I was just living with them. So by association, I guess, I was I was able to be there with her. But how much of a mom I was, I not much of one. I did end up getting a little apartment while I'm taking the checks and stuff in this real shitty town, um, a little tiny place. And I had this goal for Mila to move in. I remember being real resentful at my parents for not letting her move in right away. And well, I knew all along that one one day I was going to get a phone call from my dad, and he because he was going to see that you were robbing see. him through oh my, checks. Oh my god! Months via, especially and somebody months who's and an months. architect who has. I mean, I think somebody could rob me via checks very easily because I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> right. But my dad, I say that no too. way. Yeah. Right. So he, here's what happens: I'm I'm at home in my little tiny house, and um, I get the call, and here he went to pump gas, and his car declined. Which again mm, are, should never happen. Should never happen. No. He works very hard. Should never happen. So he goes straight to the bank, and he prints out every single check that I ever forged, and he says to me on the phone, "You need to go to rehab, or I'm pressing charges against you." And so obviously I chose rehab. But here's the thing: I immediately start shuffling around. I call Charlie. Um, he he's still alive. It's fine. I call Charlie. I call Robbie. I call everybody to try to get a flight back out to California with my health insurance. I mean, I always the got out there system. for free. The old system. Um, well, here's what's so interesting. Charlie kept saying no. Because he knew. Wasn't going to help you. I didn't. I couldn't put that together until years later. I'm not even kidding you. I was mad, mad at him for years. But, but he was also the person who said, you can't leave with Tyler. Yeah. You're he, a G kid. He, he, 
did look out for me. Well, that's it. his handwriting. Wow. Yeah, that's how much he means Here, to show me. The, show the thing. He used to leave me post-it notes that would say, you're a G kid. So I got his handwriting and the exact post-it note tattooed on me. I mean, I really do. I really, I don't know. Yeah, he was a big piece of my life. But um, so anyway, nobody would let me come out there. And I, I was like, F you. I was very angry. How old were you at that point? Like 25, um, 26? Yeah, I'd say 25. Well, maybe a little bit younger because 24, six 25. years sober. 24. I was 24. Yeah, I wasn't 25. 25 quite yet so um, they're not sending you back to they California. won't nobody will get me a flight and I you're was like so wait angry. I can't do what I want I can't do what I want exactly I don't get the privilege of going back to the beach so for the first time ever I mean obviously besides the time I was there for three days I go to a treatment center in Pittsburgh right outside of Pittsburgh in Washington County Greenbrier uh I think I've heard of I it. was gonna say it's pretty well known so I go to Greenbrier. I'm fucking pissed <laughs> I'm miserable nobody will enable me nobody will support me so, you know, you look at the first time I was ever in rehab, I was getting cards from people I didn't even know. That's who my mom is. Uh, I was getting shit sent to me, blankets. They flew out there, all the things. Now, here I am in Pittsburgh at this treatment center a little while later. I have nobody to call. Nobody will answer the phone. I have no money. I have nothing. And I'm there because I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want felony charges. Because um, you know your dad is actually going to go through with it. Well, he told me if I went to treatment, he wouldn't. He, he said it was an ultimatum. He said treatment or I'm pressing charges. So it's, it's interesting. So I get through this 30 days. And I'm going to be honest. There were a lot of differences the last time. I was just broken. I wasn't making friends. I wasn't putting makeup on, which I would do all those things every other time I was in treatment. I'd get ready in the morning. I would have fun. We'd play volleyball. This last time, I was like broken in a corner. Didn't want to talk to anybody. I mean, I was just like done. I was spent. Why do you think that was? I just think, I don't know. I just think after all the just craziness of life and, and trying to keep up with the disease, and I think I just kind of in a way gave in. And, you know, I didn't go to treatment because I wanted to. And I say this, you know, it doesn't matter what gets you there. As long as while you're there, you know, you find something along the way within that keeps you there. Like, it's okay for an outside source to get you there. But you got to find something within while you're there to keep it. And, and, and that happened for me. I would say about halfway through, I kind of started to feel like, you know, I might be able to do this. Like, I actually might be able to stay sober. Well, I think the consequences were much different. They were. Your I was afraid of the charges. Your dad turned on you. Well, so, yeah. So what happened was I had one or two days left in the treatment center. So I'm feeling good. I had um, set it up with the workers there to go to a sober living. Charlie paid the first month's rent because I, I had no money. So that I had to pay to get in. So Charlie You didn't paid. go to your folks for it? No. Oh, no. They wouldn't have done it. They were done. They wouldn't even answer my phone calls. How done were they? What did that look like? I'll, I'll, t I'll tell you in a second because my dad wrote me a letter. I wish I would have. I should have brought it. But uh, I still have it. My dad wrote me a letter in the treatment center. So I'm about two days out. I have a plan. I have an aftercare plan. I'm excited to get out there, go to IOP, live in a sober living in Pittsburgh for the first time because it's been California all, uh, all up until this point. Yeah, my parents won't answer the phone. I am about to graduate. They're doing mail call. You know, before you even go into that, yeah. can you talk a little bit more about your parents' reaction to the forgeries? They knew they had a drug addict for a kid, but it's a different level of betrayal. It really is. And, you know, the biggest theme of this is just like, like cut off, like done. Like they didn't have much to say to me. I mean, they were so fed up. And, you know, it took a lot away from my siblings. So my siblings were very resentful at me. They actually, my siblings were resentful at my parents and, and for putting so much time and effort into me. And of course they were trying to help me, but what they were ultimately doing was enabling me. I mean, I'd wreck a car, they'd buy me a new car. 
So they were fixing my mistakes. And, you know, I grew up, I love my parents, God bless, but we all have issues from our childhood. And one thing with my family is we just, it was very much as long as you look out on the outside, it doesn't matter what's really going on. And I really internalized that. Like for a long time, I'm still working on it today. Right? Exactly. Make sure you look good on the outside. Make sure you look good. And that, well, I'm going to tell you, I had a therapist at this, this last Greenbrier, this last outpatient treatment center, and she saved my life. I mean, oh my God. She was the first person to look at me and say, you're not shit. You're going to fucking die. So I'll tell you, we were in a group. We were in group one day. You know, there's all kinds of people in there looking, all kinds of different looking people, as you can imagine. And she says, what does a drug addict look like to you? So everybody's raising their hand. People are saying um, bad hygiene, scruffy looking, homeless, no clothes. They're all drug addicts, right? We're all, yeah, Yeah, saying this. Yes, correct. And then the therapist, shout out Amanda, she says, she says, you know what a drug addict looks like to me? And we're all just sitting there. She goes, and she fucking points to me, dude. All those people in that room, and, and she points to me. So my ego, I'm like, this fucking bitch. I'm not coming back here tomorrow. And she says, you know, addicts like, and then she literally proceeds to say, addicts like Abby are the ones who die. This is what she said. She goes, you hide it so well that you don't look like you're struggling and you never get the help you need. And she's like, and and you're you're going to die. And so this was a theme with her, like in in our one on one sessions. And she her job, she knocked down my ego day by day. I mean, she destroyed my ego. She crushed it. She smashed it to the ground. Built and then helped me build a foundation. Breaks you down and builds you back up. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. I and, and but she was an angel on earth because, like, I, I'm sure as you, know, I've had so many therapists, so many doctors, so many yeah. diagnoses to the point where I get a little bit resentful. I'm like, I, I've been diagnosed with everything. I don't believe half of it. And um, Amanda was one of a kind. I always say, I wish I could put her in my back pocket. Like throughout life, she's just insane. I mean, she left working at that treatment center to travel the world and do free therapy for veterans and their families, like literally all around the world. So she's just a phenomenal person, but she, she was right about a lot of things. She always favored Bobby and she would always talk about how, you know, I don't know. She just, um, she was right about everything. Um, it's funny though. I, I, I had been to so many detoxes and treatments and mostly I was ignored or shuffled through or whatever. But the last place I went, they said, you're going to die. Yeah, something you know, about that. Well, I think I also was at that point, I had been going to detox from 25 of 24 to 41. So at 41, they're like, they're like, you're going to die. <laughs> and I was like, you haven't you, yet. Yeah. I was like, I was like, you're probably, I, I, you haven't yet. I, you're close. But I was always like, bullshit. Like, it won't kill me. Right. You believe what? Well, and I wanted to tell you, yeah, you also look a lot younger than your age. Oh, that's very, that's very kind of you. You really do. If I only dyed my beard, I would, no, be, really. I would be so youthful. Oh, I'd guess you, I would seriously, 30s. I mean, easy. Oh, stop it. No, easy. Stop. I, I look at my face. Am I smiling? I'm so serious. Let's get back to the story. <laughs> okay. So listen, I'm sitting there doing mail call. They say Abby Fickley. I go, no. Or they say Abby. And I say, you got the wrong girl. Nobody's sending me mail. He mm. looks at it again and he goes, Abby Fickley. I go, he goes, it's you. I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I grab this letter. Mind you, I'm about to graduate. I'm feeling good. I have a little bit of hope. <laughs> Just enough. I have a plan. And I open this letter. You're about, you're really feeling like you I'm feeling be good. Sober. I want to be sober. I do. And I open this letter. It is a typed three-page disownment letter from my father. Like I said, I still have it. It's a very important letter to me. So this letter essentially goes into talking about how much they've done for me, what I've done for them, like how I've destroyed everything. Um, It's really horrible. I mean, my dad talks a lot about in the letter how he was always the one person who advocated for me. 
he was always the one person who would say, he would fight against what other people were saying about me. He was always the one that would advocate when I was using and convincing people I was sober, he believed me and he and he fought for me. He said, you know, people had suspicions and I, I fought for you and I told them you were sober and, and just did a lot for me. And then the letter proceeds to say, you know, we have cut you off of our health insurance. We have got rid of all of your belongings. They had to clear that house out that I was living in. So they cleared that house out. They got rid of everything. In that letter, he says that he feels sorry for my daughter, that I am her mother. Brutal. Brutal shit, dude. Brutal. Fucking. But an addict like me, it's you what needed I needed. And I'm the same way when I would sponsor people. I'm like, there, I can't sponsor some girls because I am, that's how I got, and that's how I explain it. That's how I got sober. It's how I help other people. Like, I need to, I need to tell you what it Truth. is. Yes, I need to be honest with you. And I think for so long that was it. I needed somebody to be so honest with me that I want to fucking punch you, you know? And that was Amanda. I, I wanted to. Do you think your dad, though, he did it because he had to? So this is so my dad's been asked a lot of questions in that regard. Like, did you think this was going to work? Was that a method of trying to help her? And my dad's response to that, no, this letter was strictly to let me know that they were done with me. It was real. He had no intent on building a relationship, hoping that this would make me get sober. He was just done. Oh, and then so the final part of the letter after the, you know, I, I feel sorry that your daughter has you has you as a mother. Um, the last sentence says, or not the last sentence, but the last page says, and by the way, I decided to go through with the charges anyways. Oh, my God. So there I am about to graduate rehab. I just read this letter and I'm ready to fucking die. And that's the by the way. That's the by the way. That's so what happens? I'm running around every fucking tech in the rehab center. If I did this many checks, how many how many years is that? How much time am I going to do? That's all I cared about was how much time am I going to do? I was fucking terrified. And so this situation, so fast forward, I graduate. I go to the sober living that I was set up. Charlie paid the first month's rent for me for so I could get in. Um, and I am waking up every day. I'm, I'm in an outpatient. This is where I met my therapist, Amanda. So I'm living in the sober living, going to outpatient similarly to California. But this time I'm in the hood. I mean, I could have copped next door to the sober living. I mean, this is what I needed. I needed fucking humbled. I wasn't on the beach. I wasn't in a mansion. I was in... A shitty name. Junkie love. I was. Couples fucking. Yes, yes. No more junkie love. Just a lot of females that were very hard on me. Um, I mean, this sober living was intense. You, Real deal. Yeah, they would call your, they knew who your sponsor was. They would call them weekly. If you hadn't worked on your steps, you'd get a warning. If then you'd get kicked out. I mean, they were so serious. It wasn't, and I needed that. I needed the accountability. So, but here was the issue. I was waking up every day. I'm trying to stay sober. I'm used to numbing my pain with drugs. I don't have the drugs. And now I have this additional fear about prison. I'm like, so here was the charges. 32 counts of forgery, identity theft, and theft by unlawful taking, which was a minimum of seven years in prison. That is what I was facing. And so the first court date happened while I was in treatment. So I didn't know. So I missed the first court date. So I get out of rehab. I'm in the sober living. Well, here I had a court date for the possession charge. And so I go to court for the possession charge, judge calls my name and two cops stand up. Fuck, man. They show up. Yeah. When two cops stand up, when your name gets called, you're getting arrested. So I walk up to her and I'm like, just, you know, I put my hands behind my back and, and they took me and, you know, I wasn't in there long. Bobby picked me up. Bobby and his mother, bartenders, scraping, Bailing bailed out. me out. Yeah. I mean, enabling. I have to say, but I, I do have to say though, Bobby and his mom showed me unconditional love. 
like unfucking conditional love. It's that it's that drug addict old school family. Yeah, we stand by. Yes, our you're right. That is what it is. But at the same time, when I was in the worst, they Jade wouldn't speak. My mother, she wouldn't speak to me. So she never like enabled me. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I but no, you're right. No, you're what you're saying is absolutely because true. your folks are like, fuck this, we're done. They're we're not doing opposite. it. And and these people are like, she's with us. Yeah, no, literally, this is, this literally. Is, yes, like for an Myla's example, mom, she's with us. We're getting her out of they jail. They help me. They help me. Like for example, me and my mom got in a fight one time when I was younger. My mom turned my cell phone off. Like it was just a way for her to have control over me. Bobby's mom put me on her phone line. She said, "Your right. phone's never gonna get shut off again for having an opinion." And like that right there, you know. So anyway, I love my family. I love my in-laws. I mean, it's just great. I do what you do. I call my mother-in-law, but we never got married, him and I, similarly. But anyway, so this was the hardest and the most beneficial thing I have truly ever gone through because to stay sober in early sobriety while I was facing this unknown was the most difficult thing I have ever done. And like I said, the first, I don't know, month, I'd wake up, I would throw up almost every morning, like out of sick. I was so sick to my stomach, worried what was going to happen to me, you know, so, uh, scary, it, scary. Anxiety. It's terrifying. Well, my, I mean, my kid wouldn't even know me. Like my daughter, if I went away for that long, like my kid wouldn't know her mother. I mean, it was the thought of it was I'd rather die is how I felt. What kind of time was it? Seven years minimum, S minimum of seven and years. How in old was she prison. at the time? Three, three and a half little. And you had already childhood. Missed, but you also missed a lot of that. Right. And you're finally me. getting your shit together. You go away and you basically missed the first 10 years of her life. Yeah, right. So that's my fear. Well, I had enough. Like I could not stand the way I was feeling anymore. And that's where God comes in for me. Uh, I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know who I was talking to, but I got down and I looked up and I was like, I just, I, I don't know if you're up there, but I can't carry this anymore. It is too heavy. It's miserable. It's killing me. I can't heal. I can't work on myself with this baggage, I please take this. I will take any step I need in the direct in the direction that I'm trying to go. I will I will do the work, but can you just carry the weight? And I shit you not, ever since that, you know, I, I kept God in my life. I was also working the steps. I had a sponsor. I was going to meetings five days a week. I had a home group. Um, I was of service at my home group. You know, I did the coffee, something little, something light. Down the road, I ended up becoming the key holder of that meeting. And I remember sending my mom and dad a picture of me holding this key. I was like, they're like, congratulations. The bar was just so low. <laughs> the bar was. Right. Well, I mean, Abby got the key to her home group. But She's you trusted. Didn't, how did you not? What happened with the charge? So, okay. So, yeah, let's get back. So, I'm in this sober living and I'm really trying. Like, I'm doing step work. And, and mind you, all the times I've been to treatment, I had never fully worked steps. Like, I'd go to meetings. I would ask somebody to be my sponsor, never call them. I never worked the steps thoroughly until now. Because I had to. And that's what I needed to be shoved in a fucking corner is what I needed. And that's what happened. So I like to mention this. I'm going to be really fast about it. But it's just an example of you have to want it. So, you know, the first day I get there, I'm on a blackout for five days. Sober living. Typical. You can't go anywhere. You can't make any phone calls. Well, my phone was turned off because obviously I had no money. I called T-Mobile crying. I spoke to some random representative on a 1-800 number crying. And I said, I just got out of rehab. I'm trying to get my life together. I need to turn my phone on. I have no money. I swear to God, I'll pay you back. Can you please? I begged her. She turned my phone on. She gave me 30 days. Nice. And these are the things I'll never you're, forget. You're, you're a very masterful manipulator, though. 
Listen, I was desperate. It I, worked. At least I was I was truly just honest and desperate. Like there there really wasn't much manipulation of that, but I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to deny what you're saying. It's good if you're good <laughs> if you can get the phone company to hook you up for 30 well, days. Well, you're right. You're right on that one. But I said I will shout out T-Mobile forever for that shit. So, shout out T-Mobile. Um Shout out T-Mobile. <laughs> Very good. So, anyway, I keep going with my shit. Uh I'm there for the first day. I want to go somewhere. I'm on blackout. I'm allowed to go to a meeting, so that'll get me out of the house, right? So these girls invite me to a meeting. This is the meeting that became my home group. He said, hey, somebody's going to come pick us up for the meeting. Do you want to come? I said, yes, please. I'd love to. She gets there. She pulls up. We all walk out. The girl driving, she has a car seat in the back that she can't take out. It's like installed in there. She says, I don't have enough room for, for all of you. They all look at me because I'm the smallest. You sit in the car seat. So I sit in this car seat. Yeah. I ride up to this meeting. As you can imagine, everybody and their mother is standing outside smoking yeah. in the parking lot. Yeah. And I come rolling up hopping out of a fucking car seat yeah. that was my first meeting serious humility S yes serious god got jokes baby and i say that all the time like that right there that i had to fight through that i had to i had to put my ego pride and i have a lot of stories like that but anyway that was the first day that i ever went to my home group and that's what became my home group and it became a very important place to me but yeah so anyway i kept going with things you know this trial took a really long time to happen uh i get to a year sober and we're going to trial does your dad feel guilty that you're in trial? Like, how is he living with it? So so here's the deal. So this whole year that I got sober, or that I stayed sober for a year for, I didn't speak to them. We had no, no, no relationship until right towards I was getting to a year. It, we were starting to like, like my mom would let me come pick up Milo and take her to Chuck E. Cheese type shit. But in that year, any contact with Milo? Um, a little bit, a On little the bit. Phone, FaceTime yep, shit. Exactly. And then towards, yeah, that must have been very hard. It, oh, it was so hard. Now, eventually it got to the point where they, my mom would drop her off at the sober living and she'd hang out with me. But that was, that was still a little that, bit. That must have been. Oh my weird. God. How, what was that like? It, it, interesting. I have, I have photos, um, you know, of her laying on my bed in my sober living. We would do build puzzles. We'd make slime, but it would, I mean, I felt like a piece of shit. I had my kid in a sober living. I mean, I felt like a, not a piece of shit, but I was not where I wanted to be in life. I could say that. I mean, but that's it was like, humbling. That's like how you got sober. Yeah. It's like, I, I think between your dad doing that and Mila, when she can talk, when she becomes a person and, and you, you're a person and like, yeah. And, and you can't see her. Well, listen, and she went to my home group with me for a year. She was kind of raised in the rooms. So if you ask her, like, what the hell is a meeting? What's AA? She says, she says, all these people, they all have the same problems. And when they all talk to each other together in a room and leave, they just, they feel better. And it's like their medicine. That's what she'll say. That's her definition of a meeting. And she's, I have not hid shit from her because my, I don't ever want her to blame herself, but I don't want to get too off on that. So, right. so we're, I'm kind of talking to them a little bit. My mom's letting me see Myla. We go to trial. My mom sits in the back. She, my mom had an issue with enabling so at this point in the game she just stayed back she knew that that was her position and i respect and i appreciate that from her she knew that she couldn't contribute anything good to this so she she was there but she stayed in the back of the courtroom my dad on the other hand this is insane so they they this is the longest amount of sobriety that i had ever had they really were starting to believe in me they were seeing a difference they were see i wasn't talking shit i was i was walking it so my dad ended up hiring a lawyer on to my fight, behalf to fight, him. to fight himself. I wonder if they knew that they couldn't like retract these charges. I almost wonder if they like you never the asked state, him. You know what? I'll, I'm going to ask him when we finish this. You should make a video with him about it. Okay. Be a huge video. Truly, because, you know, I wonder if they thought like they could retract these charges if they wanted. I don't know if they knew that the state was going to pick them up regardless. And that's what happened. So my dad hires this lawyer. 
And we stand, my father and I. Because he believes in you. Now, yeah. So A we, year in, he's like, he sees his daughter again. Yeah. And he probably hasn't seen his you real in daughter. so long. Yes. Yes, exactly. So we, him and I stood in front of the judge and fought this together. And that was the one of the first times I've ever seen my dad cry. Mm. He spoke on behalf of me to the judge. Like, you know, what I was up to, what I was doing. And I had a lot to show for at that point. And I was also on probation, supervised probation for the possession shit. And that was so good. I had so much accountability. It was so good that, and I got really lucky with my PO. She was like my second sponsor. I mean, I would call her, would chat. But she also knew that you were working a program. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you yeah. actually were. I you was. weren't trying to get away with shit. You were trying to actually do yes. this thing. And I was so humble and I was so broken and I wasn't afraid to admit it. I didn't feel the need to look like I had it all together. Like for the first time ever, I was, I was, it was like very freeing. Like I felt okay. I felt good not having to like prove a point or like prove myself or show how great I'm doing or how great I look. Like for once I could just say, hey, like I'm broken and I want to work on myself. And I was able to confidently and comfortably and peacefully say that to myself, to others, you know, because my ego was gone. And, and you know, I, I always say bury your pride before it buries you because that's what would have happened. It, my pride and ego is what would have taken me out. And what I always heard is it's better to save your ass than your face. Yes. Love that one, too. I was yeah. laughing last night, though. I'm with you with the whole my yeah. disease. Doomed. There were so many good ones that I didn't lot. think of last you, night. You did I should have had the crowd call them out. You, yeah, that, that, yeah. Well, hey, we'll do it. We'll that do it. We'll be able to do it. Um, so yeah, so we fight this, and he, so here's what came of it. And this is, I, I'm very privileged for this. Listen, like this, you know, it could have been a very different result, but the judge gave me, they dropped 32 counts of those charges down to one misdemeanor fucking theft charge. Wow, unreal. So. That I'm sorry. That's when the supervised probation started. After that. After that. I So anyway, long story short, I paid my parents back in the form of restitution in full. Over time? Yeah, slowly. How much money was it? You know what? It, just a, it, it was honestly just a couple thousand. It wasn't anything wild. But that's still a bunch no, of money. No, yeah, I shouldn't say only, but um, yeah, it was a couple thousand dollars. One Percocet at a time. <laughs> slowly but surely exactly. racked up the check. Exactly. So um, yeah, slowly paid them back, slowly rebuilt relationships. And then on Mother's Day of 2019, I got custody back of my daughter. Was it split with Bobby and your parents were out of it? I got I got my half back from my parents. They finally gave it back to me. You had, you had how much time did you have? Um, at that point, so a year. Did you live with them? Um, no, I was living in the sober living. I So I was a house man. I became a house manager at that sober living. And what happened was my life got, it was good. My life got so full and like I was becoming an adult again, so much so that being a house manager was starting to negatively affect my life. Like I got tired of sitting at a table because I can't pee for two hours. Right. Somebody's using. I had a job. I had bills. to Like I was... You know, so anyway, that's when I started bartending, by the way. That's how I paid rent at the sober living. I was a bartender and um, I got my car out of repossession mode. As I was paying my parents back, I was also paying, uh, I had to pay for three months. I had to pay like $900 to get my car out of repossession mode. Was it challenging mode. to be an early recovery bartending? Um, You know what? No. And the main reason I say that is because, you know, I don't drink, but alcohol was never really a struggle for me. I mean, I, I drank and did the benzos and it caused a, a chaotic situation, but like when I found dope and when I was doing pills, I didn't drink for years. And you weren't a Coke person either. So I liked, you, it, you know, what's funny is I, I did Coke whenever I was doing better in life. Right. You know, 
but I never wanted it when I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a downer girl. I really am. I'm not a fan of uppers. No, I think I've only done meth like once or twice and it was the worst fucking day of my life. I think it's like all body chemistry, brain I agree. chemistry. I agree. Like you're, How you I react to it. we both are very like up anxious people and you just want to come down hundred percent. Yes. So, but I'm sure there's a drug scene in the bar. Oh, I mean, I I definitely have stories. Um, now, what's good? I mean, when you're sober, like when you're yeah, like, you know, right. yeah. But so here's the thing: I I I, I walk downtown in Pittsburgh. I had nothing but a white tee on, packing Newports. It's all I had in my name. I walk into this restaurant, and I meet a guy named Mason. He's on my platforms a lot. My followers know Mason. He was the GM of this place, and I just was honest. I was like, I I'm newly sober. I'm trying to, you know, I'm backtracking a little bit here. I I had like sixty days, maybe. And I tell him my whole story, and he gives me a job. So I just, I just finished working for Mason six months ago. He has been a part of my life and my recovery journey since the beginning. He moved to another restaurant. I followed him um, to the Irish pub that everybody, you know, saw me working at up until I, I started YouTube full time. But he is a huge part of my life. And, and so, yeah, I mean, that's how I learned how to pay bills at the sober living and um, really got on my feet. But once... I knew I knew my time was up there. So after I left the sober living, I was there for exactly a year, almost to the day when I got a studio apartment. Same thing. This landlord, I have a really you know special story with him. I was very honest with him and he gave me this studio. It was one tiny room, a kitchen. My daughter didn't have a room, but I'd promise her I'd say I'd say we're going to get another place and you're going to have a bedroom and you're going to be able to decorate it however you want. Right. Her eyes would light up one lease later. I got a two bedroom. It was actually in the same duplex. Um, so it wasn't a far move at all. She decorated her bedroom, frozen themed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then kind of this is when COVID starts and I ended up being a homeschooling mom, which I never expected. And that COVID and that is what completely rebuilt my and I's relationship. I mean, she was so resentful at me, dude. It was wild. For as small as she was, she was she was pissed at me. Why was she resentful of you at that point? From just being gone. Just from and all, at all the, so at this point she was like, what, five, I'd say she was in kindergarten. So five. Is that when you started doing the videos? Yeah, I mean, yeah, 2020 during COVID. But when I started homeschooling, I was kind of messing around with TikTok, but I wasn't really building a platform by any means, but it, I was enjoying making videos, but it was nothing. It was, it was slight work. It was nothing, nothing crazy, but, um. Yeah, she just was really resentful. And so the, the the issue with that was I wanted her to be happy with me. I wanted to do things that made her happy, but I was a mom and I had to discipline and I had to had structure. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done, but also something that I'm very most proud of because today, you know, the resentment's all gone. She respects me. She listens to me. She's an incredible kid. She's grateful. She's humble. She's not a brat. I give her one look and she straightens right up. You rebuilt the I rebuilt it. But, you know, I have friends who did the opposite, where they did what made their kid happy. And now they have, like, you know, almost like, I don't want to say a brat, but they struggle. The, uh, the we, dynamic. Might, we might have a little bit of a brat. <laughs> well, listen. Don't, <laughs> we, yeah. we might have a little bit of a brat. I, okay. Myla can be a little brat. I, I don't want to give her too much credit. But I, I just mean, you know, I chose the harder thing in, this, in the sense of even though she was angry at me, I still chose to parent. Instead of they they say, well, it was your opportunity to finally be who you wanted to be as a mother. Bingo. You're exactly right. And as when, a human, as a human, as a human first. Sure. But I always say, you know, you want to be a friend to your kid. You're going to be a parent for life. You want to be a parent to your kid. You're going to have a friend for life. And that's what Did I want. Did you come up with that yourself? Actually, my aunt who has no children told me that. That's nice. Isn't that? Yeah, it's good. It's true. Because I had the thought 
between children, I wasn't sure that I necessarily, I mean, eight years apart was a long way apart. And I was just like, yeah, that'd be like if I, had one of I was like, I don't know. You know what I mean? But I, I, I but I was all fucked up like you were when my older daughter was young. And the thought that scary. I had, the thought that I had, I mean, I, me and my older daughter have an incredibly good relationship. Oh, good. Um, and when and when I was fucked up, I was fucked up until she was four and a half or something. But I wasn't that fucked up, and I was present, and whatever. Right. But I had the feeling that in life, if relationships are the most important thing, because what else do you really have in life besides relationships? Uh, yeah, it's like the foundation of everything. And is there a relationship that can be as rich as the relationship with your kid? Cool. So I was like, fuck it, we'll, we'll do it again. Yeah. And, well, and no, now I have I this bratty five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I like that. I, I like that because I always wonder, will I get married? Will I have more children? So when I meet people or see people that have kids that are spread out, it almost like gives me hope in a way. It's like, oh, they did it. I don't know. And I don't know if I'll have any more kids, really. But um, It's doable. It's Yeah, yeah. Who knows? We'll see what God has in store for me. But I also, just to say, this is what my dad always says. My dad stopped like giving me greeting cards or notes. He just started tattooing you? Because, well, because well, he wants me to stop getting tattoos of them. I right. keep doing it. Well, like, I've loved dad. All my love, mama. But this here you're is... You're a G kid. You're a G kid. But this here is the last sentence of the letter. So it says, you have so much to offer and you have so many gifts to share with the world. I just hope that you can find a way to live a happy and productive life. I love you as your father and I always will. So once I felt I had achieved that, I, I got it tattooed on me. Amazing. Yeah. So and, and when did this whole crazy, sober, co-parenting, influencer shit start? So I started, okay, so interestingly enough, I've always wanted to do YouTube. I had a YouTube channel in middle school. I'd prank call boys and record it and post it online. You still have them? Um, oh God, I actually think I may have a couple. They're horribly embarrassing. I recently found one of me singing a Hannah Montana song. Um, so you, that, you that put was them good. up? I actually did put that one up just because it's cool to see, you know? Of course. Um, but yeah, so so here's the deal. So I, I I got back into YouTube in early COVID. What happened was it was the editing, and I didn't have the I didn't have what I needed. I didn't have a good computer. I couldn't edit. It was too the long form content. I didn't have the devices to be able to handle it. And in addition to that, my daughter actually communicated to me that she's like, "Mommy, you're always doing that." It was taking away time from her. So I said, "Screw YouTube," and I stopped. It was a very brief thing for like two or three weeks. But I was also doing makeup. I was really into doing makeup at the time. Anyway, so then I find TikTok. And I'm like, okay, 60 second vertical form videos. I could, I could do that. I have time for this, you know? So interestingly enough, when I started my platform, I started it talking about domestic violence. I have a lot to my story. When I was in sobriety, about I think a we year, missed out some really good stuff then. Well, I can quickly. So when I was about a year sober, I met a guy. We ended up dating for almost two years. He was a part of my daughter's life, you know, but he, he wanted me to move in with him. It was important for me to get my own place. He didn't like that. I remember when I got my apartment, he was pissed. So many red flags that I ignored. Well, he has a lot of mommy and daddy issues. Yeah, it got really bad. I had a cast on my arm, I had a boxer fracture from trying to defend myself, broken ribs. And by the grace of God, my daughter didn't see any of this. And once Bobby, the father of my child, realized how stuck in this I was, he didn't know what to do other than protect Mila. So he actually went downtown and he filed an order that Mila was not allowed around this man. And I'm forever grateful for that. How did you get out of it? This is going to sound so lame. Okay. Number one, I did a lot of work with a therapist. We worked through breaking a toxic soul tie. But to be completely transparent with you and the internet, fucking TikTok. I started that TikTok shit, dude. 
And for the first time, it was enough of a distraction that I was okay without him, that I didn't want to call him. I didn't want to text him. I didn't want him to come over. I was so deeply involved in creating videos that we, you know, week went by two, three weeks go by. And that's how I got, that's how I got away from him. And and I, it's interesting because I bet you it really helped a lot of people. Well, that's right. Started writing you. Yeah. Right. You created this world where you're doing service and and you're really, and you're also creating something. Exactly. And that is what I love. That's me. And I found myself in that. And, you know, so actually started my platform talking about domestic violence. That's where we started. So then I got, you know, the people start asking you questions and they want to know more about you. And then I got into the sober skits. Have you ever seen any of my sober skits? No. Oh, you guys, if any of you, we all have to, whether I send them to you. So I used to do these sober skits where I would dress up as, you know, different people in rehab and I'd make funny skits. I'd, you know, say, we're going to play volleyball, addicts versus the alcoholics. And they'd go viral. You know, I have my biggest one hit a million likes, wow. likes, not even views. I mean, I'll, I'll show it to you. It's, wow. it's about the trading of like perfume in an alarm clock radio and rehab like girls. I'll give you this if you give me your perfume. How'd you get that in here? You can't have perfume. It has alcohol in it. Just so many people related. And it was Amazing. funny. So anyway, that's where I started. But then I realized I could really do something here. Like I realized I could make a life out of this, a career out of this. And so I never wanted to stop talking about sobriety because it is such an important piece of my life, but I wanted to expand. I wanted to show them more because it's not the only thing about my life. So then I started just vlogging and showing people all about my life, my success within motherhood, you know, which is a continuous journey, but my co-parenting relationship with Bobby. Co-parenting, I've seen a lot of. Yeah, and that a lot of recently. That's why. And people notice we go through phases because are we getting along? And we've been getting along lately. So We've been making videos together, but it's not always consistent. You won't see him again for six months. Right. <laughs> but no, either way, you know, it's good. I, I I I really found my passion in it. You know, YouTube was unexpected for me. It's such a cool Came way to circle. make money. And I, I for some reason I can't nobody wants to see they want to see you. They don't want to see me. Well, I don't think they don't Why want. Why would that be? No, I don't think they don't want to see you. I think we just, they just need to. We need, they need to know you're here. We got to push you out there. Well, it's incredible what you do, Thank and you. I think. Um, it's really cool. And I think how much time you have in April, I'm going to have six fucking years. It's amazing. And you get a little choked up and you started going back to meetings. Yes, I did. So I was a, a dry drunk there for a little bit. I'm going to be honest. When COVID happened, the meetings went Zoom and I stopped getting shit out. I wasn't getting anything out of it. For me, I got to be there. I want to be with my people, my yeah. community. So I wasn't getting anything out of it. So I stopped. And and honestly, the social media stuff kept me occupied enough that I was okay. Like I wasn't getting triggered or wanting to get high. And not that it's been perfect, but I've struggled um, a little bit. But I was okay without meetings. But I found success in social media but then realized, like, I don't really have any friends. I don't really have any friends. It also fucks you up, though, because you get all of this attention. Oh, my God. And it's all tough. of the, like, like, like all this weird, like endorphin that. And comes then the from, negative. It's oh, and it's people, crazy. It's like people are constantly talking to you because they see you. The comments. It's yeah. crazy. It, it, it really is. The Reddit pages. It's a lot. It you know, fucks up your brain, I'm sure. It, it does. And, you know, it's one thing that's not hard. We, we love it. But, you know, when me and Mila go out, a lot of people recognize Really? Us. Yes, a lot. Um, you know, we have a rule. Mila's not allowed to take pictures because we'll have situations where Jade will take Mila somewhere and Jade will text me and say, these kids want to take a picture with Mila. And I go, you know, tell them, you know, unfortunately – Whatever. But so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Milo will get recognized without me. That's that's amazing. 
serious yeah. Pittsburgh fame. You know what? Yeah, my little my little town. That's what I say. I'm like I'm like famous in my little suburban town. <laughs> but um, you know, it's really cool. We're really grateful. We I, I set boundaries because we're still people and we're like everybody else. And you know, my daughter's being raised in this school district and she has friends and she's a cheerleader and I want her to live a normal life. But you hate living there. You know what? I yeah. I mean, I, I listen. <laughs> I could be I, it would be either California or New York 100% and it, it's just all about my job and being able to network and also it would be nice to see some fucking palm trees or the sun well I, what, I know, you, if you could do anything like your dream what would it be if I could do anything my dream would be to move my entire family to California I would have a house large enough that we could all live together and have literally different quarters. Bobby and I would be on the farthest ends from one another. And your parents would be out back. Jade would be in another house. No bungalow. You're gonna no, literally, you're gonna die because Jade, oh my God, why were we just talking about this? She's like, um, she goes, I'm gonna be your nanny. We're gonna travel. I'll help you homeschool Myla. You know, we have dreams and 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 when you say to Myla, like, hey, do you wanna do you wanna be homeschooled? She She's kind of interested in the idea, but she's a kid and she doesn't like school. So, but you know, who knows? I shit, the shit that I've already experienced, I never would have imagined could have happened. But you, but you seem so strong. I mean, half of the shit that I've seen with you, it's you saying that you don't want to be with Bobby. Like that's like the, the the big theme that I draw from the Well, and that's the thing if I, or the Instagram. Well, and if I did this, yeah, it would probably take away the opportunity to like find a man to get married. Like if I chose to really dive into like my co-parenting life to the point where we like co-parented in a in a house nearby or lived in another place or like whatever, um, I do think it would make it a lot harder for me. I think it's two different directions of life. Or I could meet somebody, marry them, and have three more kids. You know, I have no, I really don't know, but I will tell you, I am so incredibly confident you're that just, God has a you're just sure you don't want to do it with Bobby right now. That yeah, seems like the only Bobby, it, I love you, but you know, we're just good co-parents. It's fascinating because like I worked so hard to put my family back together. So I always tell the person, you should just go back, have a family. Bobby's on the other end of the screen. Up. Like, yeah, I like up. this dude. Give, give him a chance. I know. Give Bobby's him a fucking listening. chance. He's, he's blushing on the other end of the screen. But you got to do what's good for you. And, and you got to like. Take, and Mila. Yeah. And, well, and Mila. What's it's like. I've been saying this more and more, and it seems like not something that I would say, but I really believe it. If you put your recovery first, everything else will fall into place. It just will. It will. Especially you, because you have this fucking fame and this platform, and you weren't putting it first, and it was fucking you up. And then you put it first a little bit, and you're like, wait a sec. I know who I am. Yes. I know what I want to do. I get this. Yes, you're you're exactly right. And you know what I have to say? I'm so grateful for... All, all of my family and their support towards it. I mean, it's incredible. Jade and Bobby and, you know, Bobby could have been like an asshole baby dad that was jealous and he could have been like, I don't want my online. You know, I've seen that shit. We've talked about it a little bit. Like I was nervous when things started to, when I started to get some traction and get some success, I was so afraid that he was going to screw it up. And we we just talked about it recently. And I told him, I said, I'm just, I'm really grateful for you that you let me do this. And you're just proud of me. And and, um, well, you're, you're doing really well. I mean, everybody ugh. wants to do what they want and make money and be yeah, free right. and you're working it out. Listen, it's so. un, it's unreal. And like you said, with the recovery, put your recovery first, everything will follow. I totally agree. But just to add to that for me also with just my religion and God, yeah, church and recovery meetings, the whole nine, putting all of that first, I am so confident 
that as long as I follow that, like I know God has an insane plan for me. Like even with YouTube, I thought I wanted to be some TikTok star in 2020. I wanted to blow up. I was so pissed off that it wasn't happening. I don't know if I told you this, but I gave it over a year, TikTok, um, maybe a little longer, year and a half, either way. I, I was sick of it. I wasn't seeing much results. I had a little bit of a platform, but it had kind of plummeted. I wasn't growing. I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing this. I'm going to give up. Maybe I'll go back to doing hair. I, I wanted to do real estate. And I said, but I had a lot of videos that were really good quality that I felt needed to be seen by more. I like had this urge. So I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do before I completely give this up. I'm going to take all of this content that I worked so hard on that I think is really great. And I'm going to blast it to YouTube shorts. And this was when YouTube shorts was brand new, just December of 2022 is when I did this. So I blasted all my best, what I thought were my best videos to YouTube, kind of forgot about it really. Week later, went to check in YouTube studio and I, that was it. I mean, I don't remember if it was just one video or a couple, but they were viral and I shit you not Dave from there everything I posted, they Did showed good. the fuck up for me. They yeah. showed up for me and changed my life. And and I say that to say, God's plan was so much fucking better than mine, dude. Oh my God. If he would have let me do my thing, I'd still be on TikTok <laughs> trying to get fame on TikTok. God is just like, relax. I have, I have it all figured out. And I believe that for the future too. I've seen it. So I can't think anything else. So, you know, I'm going to follow the right path. Keep going, stay sober, stay true in God, and he's going to make a sick-ass life. I just know it. Well, it already is. It, you're right. You know what? You're right. I was like, I was like, do, I was like, I was like, do you want to come on the show? And you're like, yeah. And I was like, well, I want to do it in person. And you're like, I'll fly to New York. I don't care. You were like, I mean, you have a pretty beautiful life. Your dad I came do. with you. You're fucking shopping, chilling at my dad's apartment doing dopey. It's pretty sweet. You it have is a beautiful incredible. daughter. You have a co-parenting situation. You make your money making YouTube videos. Dude, it's you bought a fucking house. It's like you have it pretty fucking good. I think I need him in my other pocket. <laughs> I mean, you have it pretty good. No, I do. And 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 I only say what I say. So grateful. Grateful, humble. I feel very honored and you can't privileged. say you're humble. If you say you're humble, I can't. No, don't say that. Okay. Because okay. then, because then, you know what I'm saying? No, I do. I actually Be really. Humble I and say you're grateful. I appreciate that. But what about, I, I say a lot because I believe this is true. I believe, I say it's an honor and a privilege. Yeah, I did say that. Okay, yeah. all right, we'll leave the humble part. I agree, thank you. Don't say no, it. No, I know what you mean. Because it, can, I, it fucks oh, with people. Oh, I know exactly you what you mean. That. No, that's good, Dave. You know I appreciate that. Because I'm, I'm not it's always good. humble. You know what I'm saying? No, you're right. I think you got to be a, a little cocky sometimes. I, I just know just that kidding. I just know that like it fucks me up when I'm not humble. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I'm pride and ego. Your so ego take us out. is not your amigo. I, I like that. I never heard I didn't, that. I didn't come up with that. Your ego is not your amigo. You're right. It's your fucking enemy. I couldn't think of anything that rhymed there. Did you have fun on the show? Absolutely. Can you think of any horrible drug stories you didn't tell? Tell them another time. You have, I, you have, I'm going to think, think of them. Think of some good ones. And I'm going to tell you. And then I'm also going to send you some of my skits because I think you'll be impressed. I would like you to teach me how to. Because like fucking I've learned a bunch of shit, but I don't know how to make money from YouTube. Yeah, no, I'll help you with that. I mean, listen, it. I, I have to be so honest. It kind of fell in my lap. Like I had to learn as it was happening, which was very stressful. But I got I have a bookkeeper. I have a financial advisor. I have a lawyer. And literally as of last week, I, I hired them all. <laughs> Got them all on my team. So I just, the lawyer for copywriting. It's crazy. I mean, I never would have thought, you know, the LLC, it's wild. But the interesting thing also is that you had this dream when you were a kid. Dude, I did. Well, I wanted to go to LA straight out of high school. I didn't even know what exactly I wanted to do. I just wanted to go to LA. 
I knew I you wanted, wanted to, to be like some kind of influence. Listen, and I you are. also if somebody tomorrow was like, do you want to act in this movie or do you want to model for this? Camp? I would like all of it. I love it. I would act. I'm not the best singer, but I would act. I would model if I could. I just I love it all. I'm at this hotel down here, right? I'm looking out my window across the street is, you know, a floor to ceiling windows I can see in the whole building. And it was just a photography place. It, there was just green screens everywhere. And the camera just kept flashing. You were like, I, I could be see. There. I want to be there. Babe, I said to my dad, I'm like, I want to run across the street, knock on the door and be like, what are you guys doing? Can I come? You're like the little mermaid. I want to be where the yes. But um, was it? I mean, my dream was to do a talk show and I get to do it. Your dream was to do it's like you gotta go for it. You got you have to go for it. It's amazing. You, and, and I almost gave up, and this is so corny, I'm sorry, but don't give up before the miracle happens because I almost quit. I almost quit social media. And then YouTube was like, well, hold on, don't go anywhere quite yet. It's insane. Bottom line is if you stop doing something you're never going to get there no, right. if you stop going how could you ever arrive you know what that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes it's a long process but quitting won't speed it up i love that that's one of my favorite quotes i didn't come up with that one either. it's good it's good isn't that one good yeah thank you abby oh you're my god great. thank you i'm so happy to be here sweet ask me back anytime i will <laughs> Okay, that was Abby Fickley. Let us know what you thought. It's always good to have a young person recovering from heroin with kids on the show. So send in your thoughts to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I want to give massive thanks to all of the Facebook folks. I want to give massive thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon. If you're still listening, sign up on Patreon. That would be good. And I want to thank everybody for, for being a part of Dopey. And Dopey Reddit, I want to thank Cormac for starting Dopey Reddit and running it. And people in Dopey Reddit are a very interesting bunch because they posted so many hate posts about Fentanyl J, and now they're all wondering what's become of Fentanyl J. I'm going to read this Reddit post before we end the show. Hello, dopes. This is from elegant-quit-7448. Sounds like, like some kind of droid in Star Wars. Hello, dopes. Anyone know what happened to Fentanyl J? Haven't been listening every week. What happened with this dude? Like other guests, I started out hating him, but have come around and actually hope to see him get it together. And then off with the... I wonder what that means. Off with the says he hasn't been active on Pokemon Go either. He was a daily player, so it's kind of weird. Weed Huffer says the suspense is killing me. 66666676 says no updates yet. Dave mentioned seeing him in real life and trying to get him back on the show. He doesn't seem willing to do it. Using my eyes 101 says Dave has said he's been in touch and has some news, but he thinks Jay isn't in the best place still. No, Notorious Cootie says he's probably using opiates or other hard shit again. It was only a matter of time. Last we heard from Jay, he somehow got a script for 15 milligram Roxy's for his broken hand or something like that. Wrist? I live like 20 minutes from them. I think it's very strange that he would have gotten a script of Roxy so easily for that minor injury. They are really tight on Long Island, 
at most they would give him like five Percocets, especially for a young person. So either he got lucky and that script set him off on using more, or maybe that was a whole story he made up to justify going to cop pills. I could definitely see myself in the same situation, convincing myself that I need the oxy because of a real injury. I of the gore says, I'm sure I'm not saying that right. I actually did the exact same thing once. I had emergency surgery for abscesses in my throat, almost certainly from doing too much coke, and spent a couple nights in the hospital. They had me on IV Dilaudid, but most, but moved me down to Norco syrup before discharging me. Norco syrup sent home, sent me home with a script for a bottle of the Norco syrup. I didn't have insurance at the time. Dilaudid and Norco syrup both sound so delicious to me. I didn't have insurance at the time. Figured out Medicaid shortly thereafter. Otherwise, I'd still be in debt, and the syrup was two hundred bucks. I was legitimately in pain. But I knew that I would go through that prescription in a week and still be in pain and not even get high. So I instead took that 200 bucks and bought as many 10 milligrams oxys as it would get me. Beep, boop, beep, nine said, I miss Jay. It would be good to have an update from him. And Jimmy James Dog agree, says, agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, I saw Jay. His wrist is healed. I don't think he's on pills. And... I don't know if he'll ever come back on the show. I don't know. But we will find out. More will be revealed, as they say. I do know my dad will be back on the show. His lady friend is saying he really misses coming back on the show. And I know my dad recently visited his friend Seymour. So you will get an update of my dad's visit to Seymour. Maybe we'll figure out some kind of Jay update. Who knows? Anyway... Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Wanna be so good, so bad, so bad I wanna be good, so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad so bad I want
want to be good so bad Bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had